0: You know I, I'm not I'm an optimist by nature but I've become quite pessimistic about education recently because I have, I have come to the conclusion unwillingly I wish it wasn't true that education is now creating this oil and water graduate class that looks down upon other people in many ways and we saw real evidence for that in Brexit and Trump and all sorts of things so I think that's a given for me now
1: Welcome to rethinking education education's critical friend. Hello, fellow passengers of Spaceship Earth. Welcome to episode 30 of the Rethinking Education podcast. This week, by way of a festive treat, at least it will be festive for those of you keen beans who listen in the first few days of release, I am absolutely delighted to be able to share with you my recent conversation with Donald Clark. I've wanted to have Donald on the podcast for a long time now. He is a man of many hats. Primarily, he's an edtech entrepreneur who was formerly the CEO and one of the original founders of Epic Group, a pioneering company in UK online learning. And he is now the CEO of Wildfire Learning, an AI company. He's a visiting professor at the University of Derby and he's the author of at least two books to my knowledge, Artificial Intelligence for Learning and Learning Experience Design, the latter of which came out just last month. But it's a different writing project that I'm speaking with Donald about today. Over the last 20 years or so, and gathering pace in recent months, Donald has been collecting learning theorists. He's written an incredible series of blogs on what he describes as 2,500 years of learning theory, from the Greeks to the geeks. When we recorded this conversation a few short weeks ago, there were 160 blogs in the series. He's now up to 200. Helpfully, Donald has created a kind of index where you can see all of these 200 learning theorists grouped under different headings, the behaviorists, the assessors, the vocationalists, and so on. There's a link to this index in the show notes, and I think you'll find it useful to refer to it now and then as you listen to our conversation. This was a discussion from which I learned a huge amount. It's also an episode that made me think harder than I've had to do in a very long time. And it's also one of the most political discussions I've had on the podcast to date. I'll try not to make a habit of it. So without further ado, I give you Donald Clark. I hope you enjoy the show and Keen Beans, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas and New Year. It's been a rough couple of years, but I, for one, am really looking forward to 2022. I think it's going to be a beautiful year and I look forward to sharing it with you all. Donald Clark, welcome to the Rethinking
0: Education podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, I'm doing loads of these podcasts, which is great. The, the new, the medium of the age, as, as they would say.
1: Indeed, it is. I'm a huge fan of that medium as well, especially the long form ones. Like people often say, "God, your your podcasts are really long." But sometimes you need like two or three hours to to get into something. And I think that today's topic, like we, we need really a lot a lot longer <laughs> than that because you've done this incredible thing as you all have noticed <laughs> in recent in recent well it's, t- it's taken you a long time hasn't it so um you've you've made this sort of series of blog posts of like 160 i guess it might be more than that now learning theorists spanning two and a half thousand years of learning theory from the greeks to the geeks as you put it um which is unbelievable and there's also a sort of a strap line at the top of your podcast which says finally i have enough time to attend read post listen watch and speak on anything i want to so is this something that you're finding that you you sort of you found yourself in a position where you've got more time to sort of to just really throw yourself into a big project like this
0: yeah that's right Jim. so you know uh... My background really is in uh, in business. So, you know, I managed to make a bit of money and retire early when I was 49, but, and that gave me a lot of time after that. But to be honest, it started a lot earlier than that. When I, I first came into the learning business, I knew nothing about it, but I was astonished to find that not many other people knew much about it either, to be honest. There was a lot of bogus theory flying around. Whenever I asked anybody for good references, people seemed a bit vague. No one seemed to have read much. You know, it, it's an odd field in the sense that there's no hall of fame, you know. The a, a scientist, a physicist would know who uh, who Newton and Hawkins uh, was, but uh, an artist would know who Rembrandt and Rubens were. But in the learning field, hardly anybody could name anyone, and they certainly hadn't read any of the original texts. Often, some people did, of course. But uh, so, so I've always taken notes all my life. You're in the back of a book uh, every time I read a book, I do a summary and all that sort of stuff. And so I started taking notes on this stuff, and then I did a big sprint of fifty. Of my favorite theorists, as it were, and then it grew and grew. I just kept adding as a, you know as I, I, as I did more reading and we're now up to yeah I think over hundred sixty. I'll sort of probably cap it at two hundred or whatever. but it's a big field two thousand five hundred years. it's a long time.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is, and we're gonna we're gonna sort of go through. I wouldn't call it necessarily a whistle stop tour because we're not going to cover every every stop along this this journey. But we're going to pull out some highlights and lowlights, and it's fascinating having having uh, immersed myself in this writing and the conversation that we had yesterday. I'm really looking forward to that. But first of all, I'd like to. Sometimes I, I put these questions later in the podcast, but I think with yourself, it makes sense to do the sort of the personal history bit up front because you're not somebody who works in education in the sense of like being a school teacher or a head teacher or a researcher, say, you're sort of coming at this from the outside, although you've been involved in in learning on and off, you know, throughout your life. Um, so I think it would be good to start there and then we'll get into all the learning theory. And as you know, initially, you know, we started talking because I wanted to talk to you about A.I., uh, which you wrote a, wrote a book on. And if we get to that point uh, later on in the conversation, then that'd be great. But um, I think we, we're going to focus on this this rich history of, of learning theorists first. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you go to school? What was your experience of school like and your later education?
0: Okay, well, I, as you can tell from my accent, um, I, I'm actually here in Brighton and I've been here for, what, 36 years? Uh, I'm obviously from Scotland, central Scotland, between Edinburgh and Glasgow. So I grew up in a working class Scotland and housing schemes, really, you know, that 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 went to, to what two primary schools, two secondary schools there uh, in good old Calvinist Scotland, uh, where they still had corporal punishment, uh, you know, getting slapped over the wrist by uh, huge pieces of leather and so on. So, uh, my, so that, that was my schooling and my schooling was OK, you know, it wasn't great, it wasn't bad, but... Uh, uh, I then went to Edinburgh University. I studied also in Ivy League in the States at Dartmouth College, so on and so forth. But the real, in terms of this podcast, the reason I'm here in Brighton is, you know, if you do a degree in postgraduate work in philosophy, you're unemployable. (laughs) (laughs) And so I ended up in business down here in Brighton, went into business with two guys, and we built quite a substantial company. I was the chief executive of that company. We floated it on the stock market, and that allowed me to retire about 2005. Then I I invested in another company called Cog Books, brought investment to them. They've just been bought, interestingly, by Cambridge University Press, all their online courses. That's an adaptive AI learning company. Uh, I also, at that time, joined the board of a company called Learning Pool that I was sort of, you know, helped start way back at the beginning. That's now what, 150 million valuation, 300 people in a really interesting place. That's Derry in Northern Ireland. So I'm really quite proud of my you know, my role in that. And I've been on the board of lots of, uh, big and vocational, all my adult life, I've been promoting vocational learning. Uh, it's the background, the people I come from, my, you know, my family, my wife's family and so on. So I was on the board of Learn Direct. They they were delivering skills for many years, basic skills, maths, English, and so on, uh, on the board of City and Guilds, who are the huge, of course, guerrilla and accreditation in vocational learning. Uh, What else? Uh, Yeah, it helped set up a 55 million charity about vocational learning and technology called University for Industry that's still going and spending lots of money in that area. And then I had had a little bit of an academic thing going I'm a professor at University of Derby. I do some teaching in the States primarily, but not not in the UK. I published a couple of books, AI for Learning, another one coming out in what? We've got 10 days, 10 days time, yeah, on learning experience design. And then I give a lot of talks, you know, these keynotes and podcasts that talked all over the world in Far East, Australia, Europe, Africa, and so on. And then there's all this blogging that, 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 that I've been doing as well. But and, and then I'm currently the chief executive of a, a small company called Wildfire that's an AI company in learning, using AI to automate par- parts of the learning process. So my life has been, you know, I'm really, I, I'm, a, I'm a bookish sort of theory, data-driven person, I suppose, but I, my, I prefer doing, you know, I like, to, I like to get involved in growing companies, creating jobs. That's where I get a lot of satisfaction. And so would you say, so your recent, this recent
1: thing, Wildfire is about, in particular, about AI and learning, but were your previous companies also learning focused? Was this like yes. mainly to do with online learning? And what was it that got you into that? If you were interested in learning, what was it that made you go down that route rather than a sort of like formal educational route?
0: I then no, That's a good question for this podcast. So this, this actually happened by accident. I, I was in, I went to Dartmouth College. It was an Ivy League in New Hampshire in the States. And I was I was doing philosophy as uh, my degree course there, but would I mean I think the American university system in many ways is superior to the British ones in certain aspects. One of those aspects is way back in the day before personal PCs, every student, even humanities uh, students, got four hours on the IBM mainframe on the campus. So we were doing, a course, on philosophical logic and 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 so on. So I, I had four hours on the computer, and it was it was a me. It was mind blowing, you know. Uh, played a lot of battleships and started, you know idling around in the thing, but also had a look at some programming. Came back to Edinburgh, bought a little home computer, and then got really fascinated by the tech. And the first program I ever wrote was I was going to Russia. That was Soviet Russia then, and it was on teaching myself the Russian alphabet and some basic vocabulary. So and then uh, that was quite useful uh, in Moscow. I've been there s- several times, I was there recently, in fact, just last year. And uh, and so I bumped, I, you know, like a lot of people, we, I got into this by accident. So I gathered some technical skills and, you know, the use of computers and so on. But I was really interested in how computers could do things that human beings do. And one of those, of course, is teaching and learning. Now, I had built this little program that taught me the Russian alphabet, Cyrillic alphabet, and some basic vocabulary and grammar. And I found it really incredibly useful (laughs) uh, when I went to Moscow. Uh, So, uh, and then I came down to London and then bumped into these guys who were based in Brighton, who had a video company, a lot of of video training company. And then we built what was then, you know, the the leading e-learning company in the UK called Epic here in Brighton. It's still here. That that company and cluster of companies is now worth like one and a half billion. It's huge. So, and, you know, it, it spun off lots of companies here in Brighton, like, Bright Wave, uh, 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 Kineo, and so on. And these employ hundreds of people. So, uh, you know, that, that's one of the things I'm most proud of. I think, you know, there's just the sheer creation of jobs, good jobs, you know, for young people, which, is, uh, which has been a great boon to Brighton, but also the UK, I think.
1: Mm. Can we just alight briefly on online learning? Because this is something that, uh, like, uh, obviously, you've spent a lot, a long time in this world. Like, for, for me... Um, as just coming at this from a completely lay perspective, I've often found it really like not helpful. Like like the the kind of the kinds of online learning uh, things that you sometimes have to do, like mandatory training for like whatever it is, like fire safety or some health and safety thing or some environmental policy when you join a place, and you literally just have to click through screen after screen after screen, you know, to sort of get to the end and then do a short quiz. Like I've, I've, I've personally not experienced that much stuff. And then, and then when we started talking a while ago, you put me onto a podcast, um, was it generally about sort of about learning design and this whole world that I've never really, as a, as an educationalist never really come across this absolutely massive world of people who are thinking about online learning design and it isn't all as rubbish as the stuff that i have experienced but is it okay to just sort of like could you paint a portrait of like of of the of that field and, and where you think it has gone wrong and also where you think it, it gets things right
0: yeah I, I think, in a way, the stuff that's gone wrong is simply because it tried to mimic what people do in classrooms and in training classrooms and in schools. And when you try and mimic that and 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 just get that stuff on the screen, it often fails. But this is a massive... I mean, everybody's an online, learning, uh, online learner. Anybody who's listening to this podcast is an online learner. You know, they're not in a room. They're not being taught by a teacher in that sense. So, uh, everybody. I mean, I was in the, the States, interestingly, just before COVID and uh, Stanford and then... Uh, across at the Mayo Clinics, the big teaching hospital, and we were asking students, you know, how they were learned. They, they were there with faculty. Faculty were absolutely astonished that the top learning tools for these students, and these were like straight A, you know, medical students, were uh, Google and YouTube. <laughs> Everybody's an online learner, you know. All your kids in school, that's what they do when they go back, uh, often, you know, now much smarter on their homework because they're using it to cheat. but. The bottom line is every student at university that I know is sitting there. You know, I, I go into universities, you go into the library, everybody's got a laptop open. They're not Very rarely are books. They have a book at the side, but it's mostly a laptop. Everybody's an online learner. And in that sense, it's been a huge and massive success. It's only been going for 20 years, really, uh, given the, the, the start of the internet. But everybody is one. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't gone on a course or been in a classroom for 30 years, but uh, I've learned a lot. I mean, I think there's a myth that you know that it's all about courses. Actually learning is very rarely about courses, but there's a whole lot of formal learning in schools and universities that has to be quite formal in courses. I, I, you know, I don't want to diminish the importance of that, but most learning in life is learning by doing, learning in your job, learning from your colleagues, and formal learning. And uh, there's a great deal of theory in that area that not many people know about. But we're now seeing some amazing things happening using the technology and AI. Uh, around adaptive learning, things that predict what you need at that precise time. I mean, you know, everything you do now online is in an AI predictive environment. If you watch Netflix last night, it recommended things for you to watch. Uh, if you buy something from Amazon, you're getting recommendations. It's in the AI. If you use Google, that's pure AI. Google Scholar and Research is AI. If you're on social media, it's all mediated by AI. You're in the middle. You're an online learner all the time if you're online, So, uh, uh, and which most most people are fairly regularly. So this is a huge deal. You know, there, there is this myth that we learn most of what we learn in school or university or something. Well, not really. <laughs> I mean, we leave there and we very rarely go back. Hardly any students go back to do another degree when they're 30 or 40. So uh, uh, most learning in life is informal, in a sense, and increasingly online.
1: Yeah, thank you. And that's something that, that I'm really interested in in this podcast as well, is, as well as sort of finding out about people's formal educational history. Like, what would you say... Are there the significant moments for you? What are the, what are the sort of the moments that, that leap out that have really shaped your thinking? It could be either as a person or with regard to, to learning itself.
0: Well, I wouldn't characterise it as moments, you know, little sort of autobiographical sort of flashes. I mean, I, I, I honestly can't remember the name of a single teacher I had at school, not one. I, people often, you know, I'm often amused by people who say, oh, yeah, my life was shaped by, you know, Miss Snuffles and in the English class when she read me Middlemarch or something, you know, I I go, and that's, of course, those voices are the graduates and the teachers and the people who are on social media and those voices are not really representative. Most of the people I know, and, you know, I've, I've been, I've sponsored, you know, grassroots football teams and so on, most of the kids, the majority of kids who didn't go to uni, literally. Can't remember anything. You know, can't remember any teachers' names. Can't, and certainly had some very, very bad experiences. I'm not saying that school's bad or going off in that kick or anything, but it's not for me. The moments were really self-driven. Where, you know, I, 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 there was one moment that was very interesting. It was a professor in Barcelona I met who was talking about what, you know what made successful entrepreneurs people who go off and just get on with it. And trauma. He thought that trauma was the root cause. And I've come across a lot of people. For me, it wasn't trauma, but it was getting out of the Getting out of the sort of situation I found myself in, which is in a small Scottish town with no cinema, no theatre, nothing at all, low high unemployment and poverty, and that's a big driver for people. You know, that's why most Scots and Irish people end up not outside of their own country. Uh, and so I think it's just generally I've always, and I'm not. Another thing, an interesting question, is, I'm sorry if I'm ripping off on this. Another thing is I've never joined anything. I'm not a joiner. I don't like groupthink. I don't like trade associations. I, whenever I have been involved in those things, I get I get annoyed really quickly by the the pattern which I see, which is, you know, charities, institutions, they, have, they start off with good attention, intentions and eventually become self-serving. They serve themselves and the people who run it. So I've always avoided that. I don't really like mentoring and counselling much. I, you know... Most of my success in life has come by avoiding groupthink and avoiding advice from people, and doing th- doing things differently and what I felt was right for me. I hope that made sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. It did. There's quite there's quite a few things there. I love that. I, well, I don't love it, but like, I'm fascinated by this idea that trauma can often sort of be the, the catalyst or like the sort of like the little bit of grit that the pearl sort of grows around, right? That there's, there's some sort of desire for things to be different. Yeah. And a flip side of that is something that I think is a, is a, a problem to a certain extent in in our town of Brighton, which is that it's bloody lovely here there's like a, there's a sort of like an aspiration gap because the kids are like why would I want to leave home like this is a really nice place to live i keep thinking that i want to move to some grim little grey industrial <laughs> industrial town in the middle of nowhere so that my son <laughs> actually wants
0: to leave home and find out what's out there for himself well curiously my my son's uh, twin boys and they're now 27 uh, and one of them went off and he did a degree in artificial intelligence in Holland in the Netherlands. But he's back in Brighton. He loves Brighton. And the other state, He he didn't go to university, but started a business here. And he's employing people and so on. But they both really, really love Brighton, you know, as a place. They, they, they were drawn back to it, which is nice for me as a parent, you know, that uh, they're close by. Oh, that's so, a
1: good point, actually. Yeah. So when they leave home, they actually do want to come and visit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Right. Okay, let's get into this into this learning theory. So it starts with the Greeks as it always does. Um and and you make a make a strong a strong point that that we're still very much influenced far more so than people realize. Like often when you when you hear people talking, um they talk about things like Rousseau and Dewey and that we're still laboring under these progressive ideals. But there's this quote that uh, that I came across a while ago which is from John Maynard Keynes, which I think is a nice way to sort of introduce us to this to this part of the podcast, where he wrote, uh, Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back.
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, it's so true, yeah, that... In many ways, you know, uh, what we're just about to discuss is the manifestation of that quote and it's a very good quote, right? Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's so true, you know, the two deep roots for learning theory in our culture, of course, remember, it would be different if we were in China, where it's a Confucian tradition and so on. But here, certainly the Greeks, massive influence, and the, the big three, of course, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, are in many ways reflected in the distinctions we have today, because they were adopted in the Middle Ages, and then in the university and school system. So Socrates, you know, the, the, the dialogue, social learning, you know, he, he didn't write anything, was extremely suspicious of the spoken word, of the written word, I should say. And then we have Plato, who's a metaphysician, a mathematician, you know, believed in an abstract, rational view of the world. And then Aristotle, the scientist, the empiricist. And so that social reason empiricism that triumvirate, in a sense, is still present and very much split in our society, you know, vocational learnings taught in further education colleges, but all the abstract stuff, of course, is in universities and so on. And then we have the Greek mathematicians, Pythagoras, Euclid, Archimedes. That gave us that strong, you know, that strong thread of mathematics and education, which is still, still in every school today, in a sense. So the Greeks were terribly important. But the second big root, of course, were these religious leaders uh, and the, the big four, Confucius, and we can talk about that, one, a huge influence in China. If you've ever been to China, walk into a school and you'll see it immediately. Uh, the mass exams that are taken every year are Confucian civil service exams and so on. The Buddha also, if you go to Thailand or any of those places, you'll see how strong that that uh, Buddhist influence has had on, on education in those countries. And of course, for us, now the two big ones, the big one, of course, is Jesus, this, the notion of storytelling, sermons, parables, teaching is preaching, you know. Uh, every lecture hall in a university has a little sort of uh, pulpit and lectern. Yeah,
1: the lectern, is, it's amazing that, isn't it? It's very clearly yeah. been taken from the church.
0: Oh, yeah, very, very definitely. Remember, the university started in Bologna, you know, in, in these, these places before books were printed. So they were literally, you know, to lecture means to read. People literally stood and read out books to to people who who were in attendance, and they're still very much, I suppose, to a degree, still doing that to a degree. The other one is Mohammed, of course, and I've worked a lot and travelled a lot in the Middle East, and there, walk in any school, you know, a, a, you know, the Quran means recitation and recitation and memorising and so on is a big deal in that culture. So these, that route, you know, the religious roots of educational theory really are alive and kicking today as well as we can see the, if we just watch the news you know, the teacher in Batley for example, you know, it's, it's everywhere but of course they were translated we had this huge period, what Nietzsche called the sort of 2000 year aberration where we got stuck <laughs> in a scholastic <laughs> rut here and of course the uh, these religious, in our tradition of course we have Plato who comes through St. Augustine who wrote some amazing stuff on education uh, based on, on his youth, his confessions, and how, how education had failed him. But he really was a took Plato and applied it to education with some Arab scholars. And then, of course, you have Ignatius, who uh, who, who picks up on uh, the Aristotelian tradition. Huge influence in South America and, of course, the Catholic countries that we know today. And then Luther and Calvin, who really, I Amielich mean, used to say that Calvin is really the most important learning theorist ever that all education has been shaped in uh, the European and North American tradition from Calvin. But we also had Luther as well. And then we had the Enlightenment. So that, that's the first stage. Can you,
1: can you break... Sorry, just firstly, just for the benefit of listeners, Donald has very helpfully written an index to all of these 160... 160- um, sort of key people who've influenced their learning theory in some way throughout the ages and they're grouped into these different categories and so I'll put a link in the show notes so if you as you're listening to this I think it might be helpful for you to have this open on your phone or computer or whatever because um, it helps you to sort of to chart to chart a route through it so let's just pause there on Calvinism you said that that Calvin was the most influential person can you can you unpack that a little why is that
0: Yeah, Calvin himself, well, Calvin and Luther, of course, these are the the big Protestant reformers. And the universal schooling, for example, in the country I came from, came through John Knox, but that was directly from people like Erasmus to a degree, but certainly Calvin. Uh, Universal education in most Northern European countries were inspired by the Reformation, And the idea was that everyone should be able to read scripture in their own language and learn scripture in school. So the religious impetus was still there around universal education. But of course, once the genie got out of the bottle and everybody began to get educated, and we have printing in the 15th century, 16th century, uh, we have that link between Calvin and print. So literacy, in a sense, becomes this huge virtue, this print explosion. Uh, out of Calvin in all these countries, uh, laid the foundation for the whole Enlightenment and scientific revolution. But it was a certain type of education around Calvin. It was very much as like teaching as preaching, you know, Calvin, although he wasn't of ordained a uh, uh, priest or minister himself, uh, there was a lot of repetition, moral assemblies every morning, all that stuff comes out of Calvinism, and that was always reinforced in the Victorian era, when schooling became this vast mass phenomenon. Right. Uh, so it's a Reformation phenomenon. And the classroom, if you go into a little English parish church and you look at the pews and then look at the pool pit, you know you go, this is not, in fact, many of them were when they were deconsecrated or used as schoolrooms in in Victorian era. There's not much difference between the single room parish church and a classroom.
1: Yeah, except for the blackboard, and we'll we'll come on to that a little bit later. I think yeah. we're, we're skipping ahead. Um, so that, yeah, that's something that was recognised by Ivan Illich as well, wasn't it? Illich said yes. that, that thought that Calvinism, and I'm quoting from your piece here, had literally shaped schooling as we know it, with school as the new form of secular salvation. And that's definitely something that is. There's clearly still in the. Like, like schooling is often framed in that it's like an emancipatory mechanism. The way that which the 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 whole debate around education in recent years in this country has almost been completely seen through the prism of disadvantage. It's like how can education close the disadvantage gap? As though that's the central aim of the education system is to in some way, like uh, liberate people from from poverty. Um, and I think as a mechanism, education is is you know quite limited in its ability to do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, Eliot thought that you know it was it, it was just really that that phenomenon was really the same as uh, original sin in Calvinist doctrine. You know, he thought that the that that was what education was. You had to read and understand Scripture in the context of uh, of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and Illich thought that that had carried over enormously into the educational process. But you know, I don't, I don't like those metaphors of schools as prisons. You know, the Foucault-type nonsense. I, I think that's all grossly exaggerated. There's uh, something in it, but not much. I much prefer that that comparison. With I remember, these people saw the saw church and religion as leading to salvation. It, it wasn't really, it wasn't so much deficit model. This was people saw it as, uh, you know, your one and only chance to get to heaven in the Catholic Church, uh, and then a slightly more complicated <laughs> formula in, in, in the Calvinist Protestant Reformation. But it was still, a, you know, it was a positive thing. But, of course, what was important was the accident here, that you, got, you had ha- massive levels of literacy in countries, which led to the Enlightenment and, of course, printing.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. And so we had this 2,000-year aberration, and then came the Enlightenment with some more familiar
0: names. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, this is where things get, I think, more interesting. You know, that the, the, the previous stuff was more roots. This is where things get very, very real. So you have early on in Enlightenment people like Locke and Hume who, who are big on, you know, the, the, how does the mind work? What is thinking? Uh, people like Hume think that everything is emotional, uh, you know, and, and driven by sentiment. Uh, Locke, slightly different, but still the British empiricists held on to this view, hugely influential. And Locke actually wrote stuff about education. You know, we finally have theorists who sit down and actually discuss teaching and learning in detail. Rousseau, of course, over in France, part of the Enlightenment, uh, an entirely different theorist uh, who is really alive and kicking today. <laughs> Uh, 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 writes the novel Emile, but also other works in this area, hugely influential. And then other people that people forget, Adam Smith. You know, Adam Smith wrote about uh, education and learning as well. But of course, he is possibly the philosopher who's had most influence on the world in which we live today. The man who, in a sense, defined and invented capitalism uh, and now turned into neoliberalism. And much as people hate it, that's what we have. And it's the context in which most education takes place. And then interesting people like uh, Wollstonecraft, the first major work, I think, really, from uh, from a woman looking at, uh, at education from a woman's perspective. And it was the obvious fact that uh, women at that point had been almost wholly and utterly excluded from the educational process, uh, uh, which she ranted and railed against. But she also ranted and railed against Rousseau, didn't like him much. Uh, and, of course, women continued to be excluded until the early 20th century. I often get criticized for my list not having many women. I've got about maybe a dozen or so, but th- you know, that's, that, that, that's history, folks. You know, the fact is uh, that, that women were by and large excluded from higher education until the early 20th century, uh, and so those voices were not heard, but they are being heard now, and that's important
1: yeah yeah absolutely um so so let's talk about Rousseau <laughs> uh <laughs> you said that his his ideas are still very prevalent. This is of course a man who sent all of his children off to an orphanage um yep. and so you know there's there's some questions there around uh taking lessons from somebody who you know is clearly not that committed to 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 educating his own kids or bringing them into the world uh in, in any sort of you know direct way. So let's talk about Rousseau and obviously it was mainly his his novel Emile yeah which is about this sort of very naturalistic education that that is designed for for this one young person to sort of to discover their way through nature and its very sort of child-centered view. Um how does this how does this play out because uh, you you could say well like if you look at a classroom today doesn't look like that it's not kids wandering around in meadows you know like looking at the birds they are sitting they are sitting in pews essentially sitting in rows there's a teacher at the front of the room it's a curriculum centered you know world that we're in now in 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 formal schooling so in what ways are Rousseau's ideas still reflected in the modern system that we see
0: yeah well it might be best to describe Rousseau as being the first big learner-centric, you know, using modern parlance, learner-learner-centric uh, theorist. Yeah. When you read *Emile*, it's, it's a very interesting book, course, as a novel, because it's not quite the novel, novel savage that we image that we have of Rousseau. You know, it's actually more structured than you might imagine. Uh, the the education. Uh, if you read the if you read the preface to Emile, there's references to to Locke and some of these other Enlightenment figures, but he did want to build in this work of fiction this you know total system of education, all from the perspective of the learner, and this is the first time this had ever happened. Uh, the truth of the matter is, I suspect, jump, jumping to the conclusion is that. We've had, you know, centuries of failure uh, when people have actually tried to do this in practice. So whenever you set up a school and take this approach, some of them, we've got hundreds of them, you know, lots of exam Montessori and so on, they haven't really caught on in the way that one might have expected, because the theory has some serious flaws. Uh, the, the idea that society just crushes people and that any form of formal education is bad, And that we should just let people, uh, you know, develop naturally, whatever that adjective means, is an incredibly difficult thing to execute.
1: Yeah yeah which another way in which Aristotle is just like unending the relevant is the whole idea of the middle way you know it's so often the case that like anybody who's arguing from one extreme or the other is missing half the picture and it's like I think that it often you know you need a you need a balance in these things and you know like thinking about that like so my masters was in person centered education um which is clearly you know an extension of this Rousseauian idea and it's something that I still you know, very much believe in. Um, and it's it's an interesting thing to wonder, you know, to what extent am I laboring under, you know, this idea of Keynes that I'm just sort of like recycling the ideas of a long dead French guy? <laughs> or actually, is there something in this? Like, like, is it possible that you can independently arrive at the same conclusions that actually, you know, a, a purely curriculum-centered, traditional subject discipline, you know, uh, approach to education that doesn't take account of the young person's interests, that doesn't nurture their ability to be self-directed. You know, that seems to me to still be a relevant question.
0: Oh, it is. I think you hit the nail on the head there with that phrase, the middle way here. You know, I don't really get involved in any of these sort of tribal battles in educational theory because they tend to take one side or another and ignore the fact that it's, it's like a rope. There are lots of strands in this. One of the strands is certainly you know problem solving work problems you know that you certainly need to allow the learner to to be motivated have curiosity all those important things but you also have to be a bit formal because that's never enough uh, you know just purely exposing learners to problems and hoping that they're going to come to their own conclusions has pretty well you know been proven to be not particularly fast or useful you get masses of failure there especially for poor kids if it's unstructured uh, so the poor come out pretty badly in the research on that front and nevertheless it's terribly important that we we pay attention to the stages of learning which rousseau did you know matching the learning appropriate learning to appropriate age and paying real attention to things like motivation effective uh, you know emotional side of learning on the other hand we also need to have some structured learning and understand that actually learning maths takes a lot of effort and often a lot of teaching. Learning to read and write doesn't come naturally to people. It does not. Uh, it has to be, in a sense, forced, but the learner has to make more effort than they want to. So, the middle way is right here. Good teachers tend to do both, they, you know, take all these influences into consideration. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that I'm eternally working towards is this sort of synthesis model of like, how can we, like people sometimes think when you when you say like, oh, we need to have more interdisciplinary learning happening in schools, people say, yeah, but subject disciplines are really important as though it's a binary. And you're like, well, okay, so let's have both. Like, let's have like 20% self-directed learning. 20% 20% interdisciplinary and 60% can still be subject disciplines or you could play around with the percentages, but like one doesn't necessarily negate the other. In fact, you could argue that it's strengthened, they strengthen one another, you know?
0: Well, that's right. But I think the system in a sense is very odd in that sense. So if you take self-directed learning, and now we have in every school, every night, self-directed learning, it's called homework. But if you're a parent, you quickly, you quickly learn that homework is a bit of a, a bit of an odd thing. I mean, I was a governor in a school, where some of the teachers didn't believe in homework, which to me almost felt like, well, you don't believe in autonomous learning or self-directed learning at all. I thought it was an abomination, I thought it was unprofessional, uh, because the evidence is quite clear that in secondary schools, homework uh, gives considerable advantage, which is why rich kids do particularly well. They have the context to do homework well and get help from their parents and get tutors and so on. so self-directed learning is often sort of snuffed at by people who claim that it should happen in school, but not at home. There's a bit of a contradiction there in that one. And, you know, you get this sort of half-hearted, you know, design a poster type stuff, you know, and you go, wow, is that it? Uh, on the other hand, there, there are those who forget that autonomous learning is an incredibly important thing. And if you ever taught science and so on, you need to move into that mode where you are trying to probe. The experimental method is all about that. Uh, but teaching science just in the lab uh, it proves to, to be too, take too long and doesn't have the success that one might expect. So I think going back to your middle way, you need combinations of these things. We needn't be too Rousseauian or too cognitive science orientated around this. We need to take everything into account, uh, which is what good teachers, of course, do.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if I'd sort of go along with that, like, characterization of of homework as self-directed learning, just because, I mean, I agree that homework is a mess and it doesn't work often, and it's like... I often just used to think of it as, like, it's hard enough if you set a task in a class and all the kids are there with you, it's really hard to get them all to sort of... to, to make progress with that task because they're, they're coming at it from different perspectives and so on. And that's when you're all in the same room. Like, <laughs> homework is essentially trying to do the same thing, but they're all scattered in 30 different places around the town or wherever you live... And that just seems to be a non-starter. But I don't think it's self-directed in the sense that like, they have the kids aren't setting the tasks. There's no autonomy in any meaningful sense there. They might get to choose when to do it or, you know, to what are they just going to phone it in and, you know, copy a paragraph from Wikipedia or are they going to actually try and do this thing? But I don't really I I don't think that that's what good practice looks like in terms of self self self-directed learning.
0: Oh, no, it's not good practice. It's terrible practice. Most homework is terrible yeah, <laughs> yeah. because it's regarded as a adjunct. But actually, as we've just come through COVID now, you can see that I think a new hybrid model certainly won't happen in schools. I don't think it'll default back. But I think in higher education, it has defaulted to the hybrid model because homework really should be online and you can do an amazingly sophisticated things there. And you know, forget about the cut and paste from Wikipedia. That's what you get when you get the you know, A4 printed sheet from the photocopier with 10 math problems that are all identical. That's someone who doesn't know anything about learning theory doing that. And of course, kids will go on. I, you know, I can show you several apps that will give them the answer just by taking a picture of the even the written thing on the sheet. Every every kid downloads photomaths, you know, and cheats their way through all that stuff. But that's because teachers don't have enough knowledge of the technology at home and how they could be doing this a lot better. Mm. So I think there is a... The the future is almost certainly, well, it already is. I mean, quite interestingly, isn't it, there's a really really interesting question popped up here regarding regard to technology relating to this. We had kids who weren't in school for a long, long period here, but all the exam results went up on teachers' own assessments. There's a bit of conundrum. So they were doing all this online, and the results went up. I still got a satisfactory answer for this, to be honest. Uh, you know, uh, And yet we want them all to go back to school and go back to the previous system. Does that mean that the results may go down? Mm. Uh, we're talking about this learning loss thing, but it doesn't appear to appear in the exam results. And, of course, what they'll do is adjust the examinations to cope with the problem, cause all sorts of problems down the line. But uh, it, it was an interesting experiment, I think, on... As doing it properly. Of course, a lot of that emergency online learning stuff was by poor teachers who didn't have any support and had to just rush at it. And it was done badly, mostly, I think, the old academy type approach. But nevertheless, it was something. And now, at least it's opened their eyes up to doing it properly, which is exactly what we should be doing. Because smart kids can do quite well online. And it means that teachers can devote their resources to the kids who are struggling a little, a little bit more, and take a longer time to achieve or reach competence in in whatever you're teaching.
1: Okay, there's a, there's a there's a few things in there that I'd like to pick up on. One of them is that there's this point that you were saying that you don't think that schools so the unis have mainly gone hybrid now, and people have got a lot less face-to-face time. Do you think that schools won't do that essentially because? You know, it's often quite controversial when people say like the the main function of a school is to look after people's kids while they go to work. Like people don't like <laughs> don't like to entertain that as a, as a possibility. But of course, there's a there's a big degree of truth in it. So do you think that that's the reason that schools won't go go hybrid post COVID is because essentially there's, there's this child child caring function?
0: No, I don't think that's the reason. I, I think I think the reason just like higher education it is a cultural one. So you have a deep set of practices that have been in there since Victorian times, really, which is the classroom is like a Faraday's cage, you know, the teacher's role in a classroom is almost sacred, you know, inside that cage, you're not allowed to criticize, you're not really, can't have much influence about what happens inside the classroom. That's the model. It's a one to many teaching model, hence the blackboard or whiteboard or modern manifestation of the blackboard. Uh, that's fine, I, I, I'm not critical of that, I think it works, it's incredibly powerful and uh, I'm glad my kids had that and go through it. Nevertheless, it's suboptimal, uh, it's suboptimal because lots of kids fail, about a third straight off the bat. And those kids, the kids I'm really interested in have spent most of my adult life trying to help, uh, who, who ev- eventually get dumped because most teachers are graduates, most schools are very oriented to, towards university entrance, some of them wholly and utterly. Uh, so you get this weird effect, and it's been a very bad effect, I think, on our society as a whole, being very divisive, increased inequalities. Uh, we can come to that, perhaps, in this uh, discussion of these uh, theorists. But there are a whole number of recent theorists who are, who, are, who are very interesting on this. You know, And I always think that education is not for the common good. It's for the few and not the many. And it's created huge levels of social division.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Diane Ray.
0: Have you read Diane Ray's book, Miseducation? No, I, no, I, I don't know that one. The, the, the people that I've focused on have been people like Haidt, uh, Jonathan Haidt, and uh, Kaplan, Sandal, Goodhart, The you know, the... the uh, uh, but I, I i'm open for any new people to add to the list so i'll give that one a look so okay
1: yeah i don't know i don't know if, don't know if it, yeah so so Diane Ray she's really interesting person she was um from a very you know working class family large family in the northeast and then became a teacher and then became a, a, a university professor she she uh, uh is at cambridge and um education is essentially about the ways in which the, the schooling system reproduces social inequality as a, mm-hmm. as a you know in a very effective way and we will definitely get onto that group that you that you you term the vocationalists shank and kaplan who wrote the the case against education which is a fascinating read if anyone hasn't come across that okay let, let's take let's go back so so you mentioned i can't remember where you mentioned it but the, the person who invented the blackboard you were saying that that was a really bad day when the blackboard was invented can you can you talk about that
0: Well, that's right. So this was a Scots guy called Pillins, who worked in a private school there. And the invention of the blackboard, in in, this quite early, in the early 19th, late uh, 18th century, it was a pivotal moment, really, because before that, of course, people had to engage. You're looking at the people you were teaching. So if you go back to the Edgeworths, they were huge in the Enlightenment theorists who, theorists of vocational education, you know, the slate, and kids would show the slate as a form of assessment. And they worked out very powerful methods that were adopted widely in schools throughout the UK. And that sort of worked a little bit because the teacher was, had to engage through dialogue, almost in a Socratic manner, with the pupils in the room. The blackboard comes along and for the first time really, teachers turn their back on their audience. And if you've ever been to university, and I remember, I remember Edinburgh University in the first lectures I went to in physics, there was literally a guy who stood for an hour and a half with his backwards <laughs> and he started top left. Three full back blackboards. I don't think he turned around once. And I, this is not unusual. If you don't think this happens, just pop into any physics lecture and you'll see, or math lecture, and you'll see it happen. Uh-huh. Now, there's something quite nice about blackboards when you're teaching that subject because you can rub things out, indices out, change formula and so on. So it's not all bad. Nevertheless, it led to then, and of course everything then has simply copied that model. We might have whiteboards now, and when they were introduced, you know, it was it was <laughs> it was quite funny. I remember them being I remember them being introduced there, and then all these. Teachers struggled to use them, of course. And all the kids were quite au fait with how how to use them and were leaning forward, desperate to help the teacher, you know, open a window or whatever, close a window on, on the whiteboards. And they were used essentially as blackboards for a couple of years before people were properly trained on how to use them properly. And I think still are used as blackboards largely.
1: Yeah I I understand that the technology was initially designed to be a table that people would sit around and would would co- like collaborate on but then there was it was like a power move and the teachers were like nope, this is going behind my desk and I'm going to have all the power to press the buttons
0: I mean what happened there is something I call device fetish I, I knew the guy who started Promethean he made he made millions from this and uh, almost accidentally he even he was surprised the interesting thing about this was the way in which schools are just got sucked into what I call device fetish, and I was buying kit, buying hardware, buying tablets. This is completely the wrong way around, you know. There's it, a lot of it about. Oh, there is. But that, to be fair, they were led down this path by the DFE. You know, that's where the, mo- the money was available for this. Rather yeah. than Rather than investing in the software and good pedagogic techniques to help people learn, they focused on devices big mistake, because actually the consumer market is sorts this problem, you know? If you walked into the secondary school just up the road from me now, every single kid there has a mobile phone. They probably have a laptop, not all, but it's a relatively small number now that that that, that don't have anything. Uh, so that it, the, the solution was just to, in a sense, bring your own device and top up, rather than buying everybody a single device. Uh, and that still continues. We went through this tablet m- madness, you know, keep on taking the tablets, as it were. Uh, but that's all died down now because people found out that actually they're not particularly useful pedagogically, you know. Nobody taps out like a hen pecking away on a, a virtual keyboard to write an essay. It'd be madness. They have keyboards. Uh, so we bought them the wrong device. Nobody can program or code on a touchscreen, you know. So there was this, it was pedagogic madness as well as, as well as a, a fiscal madness because it cost people a lot of money and i don't think it was particularly beneficial
1: yeah you see it all the time the flip cameras were really big when i first came into the yeah. classroom and they, they, they was just like collecting dust within years i was in a school recently and they, the recent thing is to have these massive trolleys with like 30 laptops that all plug in that was yeah. just gathering dust in the middle of the prep room in this science department somewhere um, and so yes I absolutely agree there's just an insane amount of money that's spent on that and and really like unusable huge like flat screen uh, TVs that are very expensive but that that, that that was put in in my school but they were really shiny the screen was really shiny and so it just reflected light so you could hardly see what was on the screen from anywhere it was just like
0: Absolutely mad. Anyway, I'll give you a, I'll give you an interesting anecdote there where it can go badly wrong. I think it's the worst I've ever seen, and that was in the secondary school I know of. They bought DVD players for every classroom, and what happened? We we had a student voice thing, and we we had uh, eight eight students who were picked representatives of ages and so on chosen. And they all had an interesting story to tell, which was, they, I said, well, have you, when we asked them well, what was the problem, they we said, well, we have, you know, we never get to see the movies at, at the end of movies. Well, what do you mean? Well, the supply teachers were, of course, slamming Toy Story to the DVDs for the hour, and of course, the hour, the hour, our period was never long enough to finish the movie. Yeah. And then we discovered that actually this was quite common, and that the presence of these machines in, in classrooms were. I mean, I think it was unbelievably unprofessional for a teacher to do this, but it happens. You know, they, they come in and they, they, they slam a DVD in. And so we, and that led eventually to all the DVD players being taken out of school. But imagine the cost of installation and deinstallation installation there. Yeah. So we've got to be yeah. very careful about shoving technology. That's why I think the homework thing is, you know, the hybrid model is better. You're better focusing on what children are doing at home in the school setting. That's certainly true in universities, you know, where you need a proper virtual uh, a VLE or LMS or something to manage the communication with learners, provide them with good resources and links to podcasts now and all sorts of things, mm. adaptive learning systems and so on. This is, where, this is the way it has gone, in fact.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you can see this. So the invention of the blackboard. When I was at uni, it was like the um, the the overhead projector, and my lecturers used to come in and they would just like you know they cover over, cover it over, and yeah. just reveal it a line at a time, yeah. read it out. We'd all copy it down, like arms arms aching by the end of the by the end of the hour, which is just insane i mean there is some good stuff in in japan they talk about bansho bansho is like the the art of using the blackboard and to narrate the lesson and they they, they, again they sort of start on the left and move to the right but this it's a lot more of the of the wall is taken up with the blackboard and it's like you can you can track back and forth and you can see the progression of ideas across the piece so i think that they can be used well but i agree that you know like like the what's what's not happening when you're using a blackboard what's not happening is dialogue and um, and to my mind, dialogue is absolutely, you know, fundamental in terms of how how brains learn uh, yeah. individually
0: and, and collectively. But again, even with dialogue in classrooms, I mean, my experience at school, the, di- the dialogue was essentially hands up, anyone, you know, that old technique. Uh, all the smart kids. I mean, I was quite bookish at school. I'd put my hand up. You, know, I had read and stuff and done my homework but it tends to just reinforce the views of the the smarter kids in the room and it's a very difficult technique to pull off well because you know the smart kids answer the questions the rest feel like crap you know (laughs) and so the dialogue in classroom is incredibly difficult because dialogue is normally one to two or three people maximum you know you can look at group theory conversational theory the classroom is not not really built for that it's one to many so that you know the the normal dialogue with the one to many teaching method is r- massively suboptimal, I would say.
1: Hello, listeners. I have an exciting offer to share with you. Next year, we're hosting the inaugural Rethinking Education Conference. It will be on Saturday 17th of September 2022 at the beautiful Addy and Stanhope School, which is 10 minutes from London Bridge. Early bird tickets went on sale last week, but for a limited time only, on top of the early bird discount, listeners of the Rethinking Education podcast are entitled to a further 20% discount. When you go to the tickets page, you should see the option to enter a promo code in blue letters at the top of the page. All you need to do is enter the promo code REPOD20. That's R-E-P-O-D, or lowercase, 20. As I say, this offer is only available for a limited time only, so I strongly recommend that you take advantage of it while you can. If you're not able to make it to London next September, that's not a problem because there will be an online element of the conference as well. More details of that will follow in the weeks to come. Finally, if you would like to apply to deliver a presentation or to run a workshop at the conference, either face to face or remotely, the call for speakers is open until June the 30th, 2022. There's a link in the show notes. OK, let's get back to our whistle stop tour of 2500 years of learning theory with Donald Clark. Right. Let's fast forward a little bit because we've not got time to do to, to stop <laughs> off at every. I, I was thinking that maybe we could do like a little bit of like a rogues gallery, because I know that you, you're quite sort of iconoclastic in the way that you treat some of these people who are often revered uh, and then their ideas are reproduced endlessly. Uh, so let's do a little bit of a rogues gallery and then I might ask you to sort of to pick out your the the highlights and maybe some surprising highlights um, in this in this rich history that you've mapped out for us, so let's let's start with um, with the two people who were certainly the only two theorists who were um, mentioned on my teacher training and who you still endlessly hear, our old friends Piaget and Vygotsky. All right,
0: okay, right. So, well, the I mean, a, an important thing if we're if we're looking at you know the things that have gone wrong, one of the deeper roots before we come to Piaget, we, uh, you know, Vygotsky, Bruno Donaldson, the, the sort of social constructivists, if you. Want to group or cluster of those people? We had, of course, Marxism before this, which is what led to this stuff, really. So Marx, uh, Marx doesn't really write much about education, but he does define a uh, personal life and progress in terms of its social context, its economic context primarily. Uh, so Marx has this massive influence on people who do write about education. Grans- Gransky Gramsci certainly had a massive influence. Althusser, even through to Chomsky, Freire, and so on. You can trace those things. But Marxism had a massive influence, of course, on social constructivists, uh, Vygotsky especially, but uh, also Piaget. Now, to deal with Piaget <laughs> first, because I mean, I've summed him up as a bad scientist, mostly wrong. <laughs> so if you go back and look at what happened to his four ages and stages theory, so you have those, you know, those famous four stages, the uh, sensory motor, the uh, the pre-operational, concrete operation, the formal operations, formal operations—those four things, which were really demarcated by age—it turned out not to be true. So they were pretty much quite quickly uh, uh, demolished, really, by uh, you know uh, by people like when whenever you had repeat studies by Bauer and Wishart and so on, we found that uh, they actually a lot of this stuff was made up. So we went back to the data which Piaget had, and of course, why did he get this wrong? Well, just like Freud, he was hopeless. Experimental scientist. So he used his own. He had three kids. He used his own kids, or some other people from some, you know, well-off people he knew, his friends. Uh, there was no objective or multiple uh, or multiple observers. Nothing at all here. And often simply repeated a statement until the child got it right or conformed to his uh, experimental hypothesis. And then, of course, the data itself, which we, we uh, you know, when you look at it, is next to useless. I mean, he was really. He had no scientific uh, background at all, no methodology behind his findings. And yet we have this massive influence. And the influence, to be fair, was around this basic Rousseauian idea that there are ages and stages, and that's fair enough. He just got everything wrong. (laughs) So we we have a problem there. And of course, it's it's very different with Vygotsky. So Vygotsky, uh, you know, and Vygotsky, in many ways, is, is, is not directly related to this Piagetian picture I've just, I've just painted here. So, let Vygotsky comes out, you know, uh, you know in, in the early part of the 20th century. He dies about 1930s sometime. Social constructivism, which comes out of him, hardly anybody seems to have read Vygotsky. It's almost, it's a very, very difficult read, I should add, full of dialectical materialism, and all, all sorts of weird Marxism and so on. But this idea that mediation was important of course, appeals to teachers because that's a confirmation of what they do for a living. It it never surprises me that people love Vygotsky without ever having read him because his central cardinal idea in, in, in his psychology of education is that learning has to be mediated. Now, what he means by mediation is up for grabs here. This is where it gets very, very complicated and linked to very detailed theories about language and learning. I often think the, zone of proximal, uh, the the ZPD, Zone of Proximal Development, is a banal theory in many ways, you know? My mother could tell you that you don't try and teach a child beyond their abilities and you, you make it just slightly <laughs> challenging enough and keep them in that zone. I, I often think that's a really almost banal fact that every teacher should know almost instinctively, and yet it gets big billing. Yeah, yeah. Some interesting stuff around special needs and the, the role of play, I think, which is not often quoted. But uh, I, I think the, the role of language in learning is extremely complicated. But what people do by and large with social constructivism, so if you say, if you ask people, you know, can you name a book by Vygotsky? Hardly anybody can, of course. Uh, you know, Thought and Language, Mind Society are quite difficult books to read, and hardly anybody has read them, but they all believe he's right. And uh, I think this is a mistake. Of course, he was translated. The, the interesting thing was the way in which this was built upon by Brunner. So Brunner comes along, who is the guy who famously comes up with the word scaffolding. Yeah. So the process of education in 1960, lays out all this stuff, culture of education, there's two big books here. And of course, he writes the introduction to Vygotsky's Thought and Language. Uh, so he brings Vygotsky to the table here in an interesting way. And Bruner is a far more sophisticated thinker in that sense, his principles, you know, around is instructional principles of readiness, structure, sequence, generation are actually quite cog-sci focused. You know, they're quite structured. But scaffolding, he gave us this word scaffolding. The recognition that learners need to be either, you know, self-aware to help themselves or build on existing knowledge. That's really important. But it's a little bit weak. It's not enough. So teaching, or this idea of a constructivist generalisation has to come in, and you have to bring in structure, sequence, scaffolding far more formal forms of learning. And so suddenly we had a sort of Rousseauian social constructivist theory turned into quite a formal form of teaching, which was fine. I think that was the right direction. Uh, But it just completely puzzles me as to why people quote Vygotsky so often here. I think it's because social constructivism has grabbed, I mean, it really is the dominant it's the dominant theory in teacher training, I I would say, but it's not the dominant theory in the psychology department. If you walk across the psychology department, you will really struggle to find a social constructivist. (laughs) Uh, So experimental psychology doesn't take it that seriously. Hmm. And that's a really interesting split in education because you have this, uh, once again, one of these big two camp tribal wars, both of which are, in a sense, Misleading and wrong
1: yeah I mean I think it's it's this it's this other idea of Vygotsky's that's the one that you most often hear isn't it, which is this idea that like what a child can do today with assistance she or he will be able to do individually tomorrow, and there are variations on on that quote somebody somebody's told like, that your mind is your milieu to to sum it up in, you know, succinctly that, that you know the people around you and and the degree to which you are um engaged socially yeah is a is a strong predictor, and especially in spoken language yeah um that that's a strong predictor of the future you know healthy development of your mind and I think that there's a lot in that oh, yeah. you know um and that's that seems to me to be the the main thing that people take away from vygotsky.
0: Well we do they do. I think they take the wrong thing away here. So I think you were absolutely spot on there. That notion of a social context and the and language being the the accelerator, you know, the the locomotive, the propeller in education is incredibly yeah. important. An incredibly important finding and true. But here's the rub. <laughs> How often do kids in a classroom actually use language in that way? Hardly ever. They're mostly sitting quietly writing or, you know, in a non-social context. And of course they we had the, we've had this massive explosion of the use of language on social media, but that's regarded as a bad thing suddenly by social constructivists <laughs> that I speak to certainly. And yet, the theory would suggest that the mediation, the tools, I mean, Vankowski literally called them tools, but of course, he didn't have the internet then. He didn't have these tools available. And I think he would have backed the idea that we should be looking at social tools online because that's what every kid does every five minutes of their life on their mobile phone. They are living examples of uh, texting every five minutes and using language in often a very sophisticated way, uh, even, even though it is curt, concise and so on. But that's how language is used in normal life. You know, hardly anybody goes on to write an essay in, in, the, real, in the real world after they've left school or university. So I think in, in a way we caricature Vygotsky, simplify it. Uh, you know, the, I like a lot of these theorists, you know, we know the name but we don't know the detail.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's slay another couple of the sacred cows <laughs> <laughs> uh, with uh, both both who come with pyramids, um, Bloom
0: and Maslow. Who do you want to take first? Well, the uh, <laughs> the pyramid thing is 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 quite fascinating, of course. Uh, there are really three pyramids that, I, uh, you know, that really annoy me because I see them everywhere. The first one is a very, just to cover the pyramid thing for a minute, people are obsessed by pyramids in education. I don't know why, really. But I, I think they like the idea of a hierarchy, you know, leading towards enlightenment at the peak, which is what Abraham Maslow gives you. But the first one is a very famous one, and you bound to have seen this. You know that pyramid that says uh, you learn 10% from reading, 20% from seeing? 30% from hearing, and it goes up to 80% from doing, and of course, the most efficient thing is you learn by teaching. Yeah. If that histogram. Now, that is completely and utterly bogus. So there's a guy called Wilf Balmainer who looked at the history of this. It goes back to a guy called Edgar Dale in 1946, who who, didn't, who had nothing to do with learning, really. Uh, and then somebody brought in uh, an academic paper to back it up by a guy called Chi. Uh, Will contacted Chi and he had never heard of the, of the, the the this pyramid or the diagram showing these facts. It was completely bogus and made up. And of course it got fossilized into innumerable train the trainer and teach the teacher courses because it looked nice, a nice pyramid in PowerPoint, I suspect, or in blackboards. Yeah, so the yeah. fakery went on and on and on. That was the first one.
1: I as, I saw that being used in a school in an inset day in a school about two years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, still, it's still
0: going. It is. Okay. That was the first one. The second one, which is uh, quite important, is Maslow's misleading pyramid. So, you know, everybody's seen the pyramid. Nobody's ever read any of Maslow, of course. Uh, so, you know, and he's got some really... If you go back to his theory of human motivation, way back in the 1940s, his basic concept had nothing to do with the pyramid. And he never... Published a pyramid. The pyramid came along by subsequent people who simplified it and simplified it. He actually changed the first pyramid and added another couple of layers and not the pyramid, another couple of concepts of self-actualization, aesthetic and cognitive dimensions and so on. So even you might even ask which, okay, which Maslow are you dealing with here? Maslow One or Maslow Two? I most often see Maslow One, which is the you know physiology at the bottom, safety, love, belonging, esteem, and self-actualization. But Maslow was a bit like Piaget and armchair theorists. So you know, you know, did he do any research here? Well, it was all biographical analysis, you know, and it was the self-selected group, he only used 18 people to uh, to to build his theory. 18 self-actualized people. Do you know who those people were? Einstein, Mother Teresa, Gandhi, Beethoven, Lincoln. <laughs> Lincoln. Yeah, a nice representative sample of people. <laughs> I mean, it's such nonsense, really. You know, it's it's almost impossible to imagine a theory of human nature that is more of a caricature, more simplistic uh, than than Abraham Maslow, and yet you see it everywhere, everywhere, because of course human nature isn't a layered cake like this. And to be fair to Maslow, if you read what he wrote, he never claimed that it was like this. Uh, he had a very sophisticated view of you know the lower needs here, the D needs uh, especially, and that, that was fine, but also the self-actualization. People like a pyramid because they like the idea that teachers and lecturers like the idea that they're leading students and pupils to some sort of form of enlightenment, you know, like, like Buddhism, some sort of nirvana. And at the peak is the self-actualization, which, of course, is complete nonsense. It, it doesn't. In fact, Maslow added one called Transcendence above self-actualization. Wow. <laughs>
1: like levitation or
0: something. Yeah, well, that's, it started to get ridiculous. And, of course, he never thought of it as a layer a uh, 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 it doesn't, you know, it wasn't really a hierarchy in Maslow's writing. It's much more sophisticated. Maslow himself said that his motivational theory was published 20 years ago, and he said that in all that time, nobody repeated it, tested it, or analyzed it, or criticized it. They just used it. They swallowed it whole, he said, with only my And that shocked him. He thought it was completely wrong, you know, that they should have done this. But it, it, that's the second one. Then, of course, the third one is Bloom. So we have Bloom. And this is the really dangerous one, because I think this is at a massive detrimental effect on education as a whole. So Bloom's initial tripartite distinction between the cognitive psychomotor and affective, people dumped the psychomotor and affective, and all he did is pick up on the first book he wrote, which is the taxonomy of educational objectives, which focused on the cognitive side. So you get, and then of course he had two, the first triangle that Bloom comes up with which is the knowledge at the bottom, then comprehensive application, analysis, synthesis, evaluation. There is this complete myth that learning is some sort of ladder that you climb, and that you don't do any of that stuff until you get to university or something, and that knowledge sits in the bottom like a pile of crap. And this has led to the diminution of knowledge and the role it plays in all those other things. Mm-hmm. So along comes Laurie Anderson. And so the triangle does not appear at all in either the original or revised Bloom's taxonomy. It doesn't appear at all. It has nothing to do with Bloom, okay? The triangle representation was invented by somebody as part of our presentation. That's that's the truth of the matter. But that's the bit that we know. Now, Bloom was much more sophisticated than the triangle would suggest. And Laurie Anderson, his pupil, came along and revised it, changed all the nouns to verbs because learning is a process and not an event. That was a good thing, but he also scrapped the triangle. He said this is not this is the worst possible representation of Bloom. What he did is change it so that knowledge played a role in all those things. So that you know, if you're doing synthesis or analysis, of course you're bringing in knowledge. Knowledge isn't a thing you learn at the bottom and then abandon. You know, like that stupid idea that well, don't teach knowledge; they can look it up on Google. Well, no. You know that's not how it works. What actually happens is if you are evaluating or synthesizing or doing analysis or applying things, you're bringing knowledge to the table all the time so he mm-hmm. he he abandoned the triangle so those three triangles I think the allure of the triangle it's geometric simplicity, representation of a hierarchy, the suggestion of progression towards a peak. This appeals to educators because it makes them look as though they're go back to it, preach it. you know teaching is preaching it's almost a religious progress you're making towards God but it's just not true learning is a very messy process and it is a process
1: yeah it's, it's fascinating that there are these three pyramids that are so widely reproduced I do think that it's yeah it fits nicely on a you can give each layer a different color and it looks good on a slide but there's also something that's sort of like intuitively truthy if they feel truthy, don't they? Like the, for example, the like you know, the worst thing you can do is lecture someone, and the most effective thing you can do is teach someone. I think everyone's sort of sat in a lecture when they've just switched off, and like, oh god, this person's boring. This is not this is not engaging me because he's not getting that dialogic thing, especially when. You know, you so often get, you know, like people at universities and so on would apologize and they say, oh, I know that this isn't good, good practice with regards to teaching and learning. I'm going to deliver an hour long lecture on the importance of interactivity in learning. Say, you know, you see that sort of nonsense all the time and you can see how teaching some teaching somebody else something is quite a sophisticated thing to do. Right. Because you need to know your stuff, but you also need to be able to put yourself in the position of what it's like to not know it, to try to overcome that curse of knowledge thing, and you can see how you know like being asked to teach somebody else something does make you learn your stuff because it because it requires a different set of processes it makes you sort of to look at this thing from multiple perspectives, which you can you could argue you know is like you know multiple modalities of thinking you could there's something that's truthful in that and likewise with maslow the sort of the hierarchy of needs where you've got like you know if somebody doesn't feel safe if there is there's a kid in your lesson who hasn't had enough sleep who isn't getting enough food they need breakfast you know they need they sometimes they just need to know that everything's going to be okay they're not going to be able to balance equations that day because they're scared about going home because something bad's happening right they're not physiologically safe and so again that sort of you know i don't think that that just feels true like it's it's true right that's 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 a a statement of truth i'm not saying that all of the other layers that follow in the pyramid are but and, and again with the with bloom like it sort of feels like like knowing your stuff is important but it's not like like you know elon musk you know read the read the encyclopedia at age 15 or whatever it was but, like that wasn't sufficient to make him the person that he became right? That was like a foundational layer of just like learning loads of shit, and then you start to apply it and be creative and do stuff with it and those things seem to be sort of higher order that build on the knowledge so I think that like although in each of the cases, I can see the criticisms that you're making, there also seems to be some sort of degree of a dollop of a dollop of something truthy in there would you not would you not agree
0: well you used an interesting word there, and that's intuition. And of course, of course, it's obvious that if someone's homeless, they're going to struggle to learn. But I don't need a pyramid from Maslow to come to that <laughs> conclusion. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous that you need a pyramid to even, you know, it's just so ridiculous. The, the, I mean, those, those are banal and obvious in a way, those things, you know. And there's, there, we, have a, we know a lot about this now, the way in which sleep, for example, affects kids in classrooms and so on. But this isn't helped by Maslow. You know, and when you go up the, you know, to belongingness and esteem and co- it just gets ridiculous because it's so simplistic. And of course, life is mu- some people are some people actually operate a very high level of self actualization, but really do have nothing, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it, it's a much more human nature is much more complicated than the intuitive pyramid would suggest. So there's some intuitive intuitions that are banal, I would say, but some are misleading, and this is where it's wrong, and that's why Bloom is particularly bad, because it suggests that knowledge is the bottom of a heap, where it's not, it's a much more complicated thing in cognition. Now, the, the, the problem here is that if you rely on intuition, which a lot of people do, you get another set of my baddies here, if you want to say the good, the bad, and the ugly in learning theory, and of course, we have the famous uh, learning styles theorists. So relying on uh, on intuition, which has kept learning styles alive, and just ask, go to any conference, ask how many people believe in learning styles, and a majority of people would put their hands up. And so, and I've seen this so often, it's dispiriting. But Fleming was an armchair theorist uh, who gave us the back learning styles, and it's still, still widely believed in universities and schools. Uh, Honey and Mumford was the the equivalent in the... Over in corporate training, as it were, COB, and then the worst of all, of course, is Bandler and NLP, Neuro-Linguistic Programming, which is a formal learning styles Really, <laughs> who you know shot his girlfriend dead with a Colt 45 revolver. Uh, you know, a hideous human being uh, whom people still look towards enlightenment uh, because he came up with some crappy theory of learning styles. So intuition, intuition leads you to believe that the sun goes around the earth. And it has a similar effect sometimes in education. It leads you to believe things that are false because learning styles don't exist. It's, not, it's actually not wholly true. There's such a slight element of this in terms of the types of yeah. uh, channels, cognition. But by and large, they have been massively misleading. And I had this very recently, my, head, my kids in Downs Primary School, literally 300 yards from my front door, got badges. Uh, one was a kinesthetic learner, Carl, uh, my, my son, a kinesthetic learner. What on earth does that mean? An audio, the, audio, audio, really, what, they listen to podcasts, they don't watch TV? What is this? It's just complete nonsense. Any form of analysis beyond the base intuition shows that it's bullshit, but it's still widely believed. So, intuition is a bad guide here. Bjork talks about this a lot, self-delusion amongst learners. So if you look at sort of later cognitive theory, you know. Asking learners about their preferences is a really bad thing to do because they're often, you know, there's a huge amount of self delusion in that. So, if you ask people how they learned or what the most efficient method of learning is, they will tell you that taking notes and underlining and using felt tip pens is great. And of course, we know with a fair amount of certainty that that's one of the worst learning strategies you could take. Actually, what you need to do is look away from the page and make some effort to recall it into your brain. And uh, you know, really get to grips with the concepts. Generative learning works. So a whole load of things work, but you know, the sort of advice that we give people around metacognition is normally, if it's based on intuitive uh, preferences, it's often wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I can see that. And again, we might come back onto that later when we when we catch up with uh, Jonathan Hite. But first, there's one more group in this rogue gallery. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think that you might see as, as the most pernicious of them all, which is the assessors.
0: Well, this is right. I mean, this, I was one of the last, uh, in fact, in Scotland, uh, I was the last year that had the 11 plus, And the 11 plus, of course, came straight out of Binet, the original IQ intelligence guy, through uh, Hans Eisnick and all, all sorts of people. There were some pretty hideous examples. Cyril Burt was the famous guy at the University of London. He was the man who was it. Responsible for the introduction of the standardized 11-plus exam. And that was put into the Butler Act in 1944 as law. And, of course, we found out that actually he made it all up. His data was falsified. But we still have, much to our shame, we still have the 11-plus and grammar schools in the English system. And that's an appalling, an appalling phenomenon, because it's based on falsified results by a cheat uh, uh, whom we still homage to. Uh, now, there are many other things here around personality traits. We measure people in all sorts of ways, you know, uh, but I think that particular so IQ approach to people was has done immense damage over many generations to many young people. It's hideous. It's a, a form of apartheid that shouldn't be allowed, and any teachers who teach in those schools should be rebelling against it. Uh, I really I feel that Strongly about it, mm. having seen in a class of thirty, you know how many people went to this the the supposedly better school in my class? Four, four kids, and I never saw the other twenty-six again. Uh, that was an appalling situation, yeah, and yeah. It still today, and uh, disgraceful, really. Anyway, it's, some,
1: <laughs> it's something that that's come up so many times in the because of the, the I suppose because of the age of the people that I'm often talking to. Kids who were given the eleven plus, some of whom passed it, some of whom failed it, some of whom like they passed it, but their siblings failed it, and it's like some it's like the plot device of some like clunky musical where like one kid goes off and lives one life and another kid goes off, and lives another life because of some arbitrary test that they were given at age eleven, sometimes they were given loads of preparation for it. Often they weren't. And I think that I think that from, from my understanding. So when Theresa May was the prime minister, like that like grammar schools was like re, reanimated, wasn't it? it? this rotten corpse of a policy? And I think it's because she went to a grammar school and she felt like she had sort of earned her place at the at the top table in terms of, you know, the, the powerful tables around the of, of, uh, of politics, and many of the other people were like just they went to Eton or Harrow or rugby, right? And that they they seemed like more undeserving. So for her, I think that she sees grammar schools as being, in some way, more meritocratic, more meritocratic than just allowing the public school uh, kids to to you know run the show from one generation to the next. And I think that that's where it comes from. Obviously, I'm not saying that that's. You know the solution. I agree with you that it's it's clearly a, a form of educational apartheid, and and when we got rid of when we got rid of that tripartite system, we we introduced setting by ability, which you know um, you could also argue as you know a form of educational apartheid, where there are some kids who are in the bottom sets from get go, you know from the get go from the start of year seven, and whose whose options are very limited. Uh, and they 're not allowed to choose what subjects they're interested in, for example, because you know it'll make the school 's results look bad. you know there are all kinds of ways in which the policies that we still have um are very very limiting of of you know the experiences of young people and as as we 'll come on to very much steering them down academic routes and away from vocational learning as though that 's somehow you know a like a subhuman you know desire that you know that you would actually want to work with your heart or your hands rather than your head yeah um so so let's okay let's just stay on the assessors for a moment because there's a bit more to say here because obviously we're living in the age of Pisa um and the influence of Andreas Schleicher has been huge and also Myers-Briggs um is interesting to to alight on briefly I think
0: yeah well Schleicher of course is just the I mean it's really sad you know, the PISA results, which are statistically dubious. I mean, there are lots of good people who do good analysis on those results. And it's it's worth reading and digging in. The more you dig, the weaker a lot of the conclusions come to. Some of it is actually quite useful as well, I should add. Nevertheless, uh, the way it's been caricatured and used by politicians to justify whatever policy comes into their head, like, Theresa May on grammar schools or Tony Blair before was worse than that. I think he, he really kicked off the faith schools and academies system and free school system that the Tories then uh, picked up on uh, later on. So I think a lot of people have been guilty of, oh, look, it was good for me. It must be good for everyone. And I'm tired of hearing pe- of people and I've been on lots of boards with people who, who justify the grammar school because they went to one. <laughs> That's not a good way to judge anything really, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, you know, not looking at the evidence, ignoring the evidence deliberately because they think that they, it comes back to something Sandal mentions around meritocracy, you know, the idea that actually I'm really good and that other people are not so good and it was good that they plucked me out and found me. Uh, it comes down to almost like an innate eugenic view of the world that there are lots of, there's this group of really bright people out there and that if only we help them. Uh, the world will be great. It's great for them, but it's not so good for others. Mm. But the other one is Myers-Briggs, and I have a particular hatred of Myers-Briggs, <laughs> mainly because I've been through so many of them, and you know, it's very, very common in business. But basically, you have two people who have no training at all in psychology. okay? None at all is the mother and daughter uh, pair here. And they pick up on some you know, hokey uh, archetypal theory uh, from Jung. And they come up with this questionnaire and turn it, in, and it's now a multi-million dollar business. It's huge, but it's really a marketing business. And of course, there's plenty of evidence to show uh, that it's just quite simply wrong. Okay, even Jung thought that the dualistic definitions were wrong, but they still we ignore that. You know, there is no clear for Jung. There is no clear yes and no categories around this stuff. So. Even the basis of the theory was wrong. But then when you come and look at these really, really smart studies, and there's a really important one in 1982 by uh, Karkaston and Cook, where people are asked to compare their profiles and their preferred profiles and the actual MBTI test profile, and only half of them picked the same profile. And so its predictive power is absolutely hopeless. In fact, you can test people one day and test them on another and they get different results. Now, we, there is another model, the ocean model that's actually quite predictive and much better but we're lazy, you know? It's like Bloom. Bloom is a 60-year-old theory, you know? Why? There have been plenty of other taxonomies since that are much, much better, but we tend to default back to these ancient theories. I mean, you're talking, you know, you're going way back. It's at now, what, 70, 80 years old, Myers-Briggs, as a theory. It's a caricature, again, a caricature of human nature, and yet, people love a quiz. <laughs> so let's make a lot of money by giving people little quizzes. And it's no better than astrology, really. You know, that's uh, in terms of its scientific uh, validity. Yeah. And of course, it's massive in HR because it's so easy to do. You know, and people feel really good. They feel like astrology. That oh yeah, that's right. God, you really got the right. I really am a Sagittarian, isn't it? I like to travel. <laughs> it's it's such nonsense. So I think this whole measurement of human beings from Eisnick through to Gardner, for example, multiple intelligences, which, strangely enough, seems to match the school curriculum almost exactly. <laughs> so most people are quite dismissive now, the multiple intelligences theory by Gardner. Yeah. Goldman around emotional intelligence. Again, I can show you the evidence that shows that it's next to useless trying to teach that stuff, and Goldman got it mostly wrong. Schleicher with Pisa, Myers-Briggs, and there's a thing in the corporate world you've probably not heard of, called Kirkpatrick. But most of these attempts to measure, overmeasure, and overreach and have very little scientific validity so or accuracy. So, you know, we have to be very careful, but we're almost obsessed by that type of assessment. And I'm not against assessment, formal assessment in schools, universities at all. But this type of assessment, assessment by proxy, is a big mistake.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it fits in. you mentioned neoliberalism earlier briefly um and someone else who's really interesting to to look at on this is Stephen Ball I don't know if you've come across him much he's at the Institute of Education who's written a lot about neoliberalism in the way not just it's it's use as an as a as a um as an economic idea or as a or as a framework for sort of for reforming public services as we've seen with like you know selling things off and essentially you know like the academization process can be seen as a form of that but also in terms of how we think of ourselves as human beings, you know, in the way in which there's this thing called the research excellence framework, this process by which, you know, uh, university lecturers and, and researchers are judged in, in terms of their, you know, usefulness. Um, and, it's, and this led to this sort of publish or perish culture where you have to sort of publish a certain number of papers of a certain number of types and and the the one that gets the highest prize in terms of you know points for the ref for the research excellence framework is um like really dense theoretical stuff that hardly anybody else understands and it 's of you know of arguably limited use and and you know i 've worked with university based people recently on working directly with teachers. Um, on like, you know, action research and, you know, actually directly working to influence practice. And that is so unrated in terms of the research excellence framework that they have to take annual leave in order to do that kind of work because it's just not considered to be to be okay. And so the ways in which we measure academics, the ways in which we measure schools in league tables, you can see that in the ways in which we measure, you know, kids in terms of, you know, like their educational worth is weighed in GCSE grades um you can see how just how powerful the assessors have been in framing almost everything that happens there's that phrase that's come up before we treasure what we measure you know like the things that get measured are the things that get done and so the schools are going to are going to really focus
0: on that um at the expense of all else although although i would push back a little bit on this you know blame the man you know like blame neoliberals, liberals click out capitalism, neoliberalism or something. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not too sure I agree with this. So I've worked in the university sector, you know, and actually, you know, universities are not run by managers or external business people, whatever people may think. They're by and large academics still on the Council of Senates and senior bodies. And they absolutely love assessment because it's so easy for them. You just wait and the kids sit in the panel at the end, you know, or the end of year exams, because, you know, lecturing is easy. Teaching is really hard. And so there's no real formal assessment going on in lots of those courses, you know, no attempt to do anything sophisticated. The the lecture is still the fundamental pedagogy there. But I think we've got to be very careful about blaming neoliberalism or or some such thing for assessment. Let me give you an example. So my mother and sister were both nurses, okay? They wouldn't get a job now. They were working class women who would be excluded from nursing, which is why I think one of the reasons we've got 40,000 shortage of nurses. What happened? The university system grabbed a vocational subject that was taught well beforehand, turned it into a degree course, so you need a degree since 2013 to become a nurse. This has excluded working class women. It's not, of course, some working class women will get degrees, but it's, this is the university system that's brought in their form of assessment, and this wasn't something imposed upon them. The universities actually did this. They land grabbed, just as they have recently with degree apprenticeships in business and so on. Uh, they wanted the levy money, so I don't think I, uh, this. Ble- you know, I've spent, I've had one leg in the public sector all my life, one in the private sector, and uh, you know, I've grown very weary of people blaming <laughs> capitalism for everything. You know, uh, but isn't
1: that land grab happening because they get revenue, which again comes back to neoliberalism? They they, they land grabbing nurses because then they'll make the revenue from from nurses like paying tuition fees off. From- no,
0: no, 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 well, that, that's quite. I, I don't think that's right. Actually, it is about revenue. I think it was about them believing that everything should be a degree. We now have a, we now have a hypothesis that this is driven by the universities, universities UK universities lobbied for this. Uh, 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 we now have a proposition that all oh, policemen should have degrees. Is there anything dumber than that? So, uh, you know, this is the universities, they they lobby for this. Of course, they lobby for the revenue, but revenue pays the wages of the academics. <laughs> if you speak to the academics teaching nursing, they absolutely believe that it should be a degree subject. In fact, they will brook no criticism over it at all. So this idea that it was all the private sector imposed this upon people, in actual fact, there's been a huge amount of effort by the private sector to re- I've spent all my adult life working towards rebalancing the system so that going to uni is no longer the primary aim of education, and that we should be rebalancing the system, which is why I, I like those theorists who, who, who see vocational learning as not being well-treated. I mean, universities are not good at this. They're not good at practice. They're not good at the application and learning by doing. They tend to over-theorize subjects, which makes it more expensive. It takes longer. Uh, and we've abandoned some of the more apprenticeship-type models that we had before that were working perfectly well, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, I, 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 you know, this was not imposed upon the universities. The universities have gradually had scope creep, but they wanted it because it's more, you know, most of that money gets spent on the academics of course and then they all become researchers and so on and so forth, the whole thing gets very top heavy.
1: Yeah, okay that's a fascinating discussion, let's come on then to the lists. So this so the, the first one on your list is, is is it Roger Shank and he's somebody that funnily enough I yeah. hadn't heard of him before but earlier this week his name came up because I was talking to somebody about next year's World Education Summit and he spoke at the last one and he did a talk called Why Education Sucks <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, and the the person that i spoke to was like she hadn't even she couldn't even bring herself to to watch it because he apparently he's quite rum and he uses you know he doesn't um you know refine his language you know too much he just sort of shoots from the hip he sounds like an interesting guy so so tell us about roger shank and then we'll get into so you're also talking about about kaplan um Sandel and Goodhart in this category and this is where we get into some really really interesting territory i think
0: Well, uh, Roger Shanks is a really good friend of mine. I've known him for what must be near 25, 30 years. you really should, I mean, I, you know, it's a, I think it's it's appalling that somebody who thinks they've got critical skills just refuses to watch somebody because they, they make the assumption that they disagree with them before they've listened to them. <laughs> I just find that unbelievable. I hope that person isn't in a university or teaching because that... I, to,
1: to, to their credit, I don't think that they had said it that, that it's because they disagree with them. It's just that she was like, she couldn't, she because she's running it, she felt a little bit sort of, you know, a little bit... um. What would be the word? I don't know. I'm trying to sort of put in words into her mouth. Um, but I just think that she just felt a little bit, like, sort of unsure because of the fact that it was a bit of an edgy talk, you know. Uh, I don't think that it was that she was refusing to listen to it because she didn't think she'd
0: agree. OK, well, he is edgy. You know, he's a, he's a New Yorker, you know, he's bold, brash, but people must remember who... Roger Shank was a major cognitive scientist. I mean, a real, a real high flyer in the field. People like Steven Pinker quote him all the time. His script theory is still a solid bit of research. This is a serious academic in our field, you know, way above most of his critics in that sense. And he taught maths, uh, you know, at Yale, and you know, this guy this guy knows his stuff. And his proposition, having worked within the system, is that the whole system at university, so if we talk, he's written loads of books about schools, but at university, is the, he has this famous line, there are only two things wrong with education, what we teach and how we teach it. He really believes that people learn by doing and that we've abandoned the vocational, uh, uh, and that that has been a disaster. He also thinks that his bet is in maths, you know, he, remember this guy taught maths at the highest level and, you know, Ivy League level in several universities and thinks it's ridiculous that we should be teaching kids quadratic equations and SIRTS. Uh And even mathematicians don't use that stuff, you know, <laughs> uh, when they go and he thinks it's a fossilised curriculum. He has actually written widely about the historical roots of the curriculum and where they came from and why it got fossilized. But he, you know, he sees the sort of maths fanatics or maths Taliban you know, as the people who want to shove maths down the throats of every child right up to the age of 18, and of being largely number theory, some stats, of course, there's some useful stuff. But teaching kids algebra, quadratic equation is just next to useless. And he has a point. I I think that
1: many kids would would agree with that as well. Like I hear that a lot. Like, what's the point of us learning all this algebra? Like, it's it's hard. It's hard for the kids to understand. You know why it is that? That that's a compulsory subject, over for example history that
0: isn't or over any other subject. It's hard for me as an adult to understand it. I mean, I've got a kid who's who's good at maths as a degree in artificial intelligence. Half that degree is pure advanced maths. He, you know that's fine, but. <laughs> Just because it's good for him doesn't mean to say we should shove it down the throats of every other kid, most of whom are not going to university anyway, and who are distressed by the fact that they fail very quickly because it's so badly. It's such a difficult subject to both teach and learn. Now, Shank has, uh, Shank has a much more sophisticated set, sets of theories around it. Remember this guy's script theory is, is a huge thing in cognitive psychology. Uh, but he builds upon that and rejects the idea that you have to fill people up with knowledge, you know, that, that, that they're not going to use. It, it, his idea is that we should be constantly allowing people to create these meaningful scripts at the heart of the instructional method. And he doesn't necessarily mean primitive storytelling. I don't like that word, storytelling. Uh, but it's a, it's about scripts, which are is the way people learn, and more importantly, the way in which we store knowledge and recall knowledge uh, and learning and skills, and which is why his, he's designed many, many. He made a lot of money in business as well by designing courses around cybersecurity and business, which were really learned by doing. You know, like, okay, open a shop. Now learn about the finance. Bring in this knowledge as you need it, as you struggle with building a business. This is his uh, modus operandi. And he's been hugely influential, actually. I think Shank opened my eyes up certainly to the impoverished nature of the lecturer in universities, which are really, I mean, he, he says, listen, the bottom line is that professors are really looking out for PhD students. They're not that interested in the others, <laughs> which I there's a huge truth in that. Uh, and that actually the lecturing thing is so easy, it's a way of just avoiding teaching. Uh, and that most people don't actually teach in universities. These are quite, in many ways, obvious statements. Uh, And yet the the system has barely changed in the the 64 years I've been on this planet, and Roger's older than me. But there are other people who are just as interesting here, you know, going on from Shank, who who have really done the legwork in different fields. Kaplan, of course, and Kaplan's book is really worth looking at because it's called The Case Against Education, and The Case Against Education is a deep economic analysis. Of schools and higher education, and the conclusions are deeply worrying. Because the conclusions he comes to is that in higher education, about 80, remember this is mostly American data, but you know you can see how it would work here. About 80% of the money spent in higher education on the teaching side is about signalling. So he has quite a deep analysis. It, On that, But he thinks, as another argument in the book is interesting, that this doesn't raise our productivity as a society. Neither does it enrich their lives. In other words, the idea that they walk away being these super smart, critical thinkers, there's very little evidence for that. Uh, And, you know, I've got a rack of books behind me that we could go into that in some detail. But if it's true that 80% of this degree stuff is signaling, that's 80% of the cash is literally wasted, worse than that, it may be creating divisions in society because people are getting on by simply spending money in a filtering process. It may be creating massive divisions between an educated graduate class and an underclass. And uh, I think he's right on this. It was a really interesting book. I got him across, I know, I know Brian and got him across to speak in Berlin. And you, know, you could see the people in the audience shaking their heads they weren't even listening to his arguments. They were just dismissing him because they didn't like the message. And that's a shame that we're in that situation where people get dismissed. Well, it's a reality
1: tunnel thing, isn't it? You know, like, like people live in their reality tunnel and we we go to school from a young age, we're told that school is a really good thing, that it's a really important thing, that if you if you bunk off a day, that that's really, really bad and that you've got to go and work really hard and get these qualifications and people send their own kids to school and so on. And so even the... the, the the, the title of that book, "The Case Against education," mm-hmm. is shocking isn 't it to people yeah. because it 's not it's something that comes from outside of their reality tunnel, and they 're not going to like that message because they 've never heard anything like it before, and so I can see why people would would respond to it in that way, especially if it's a, if it 's a graduate audience if it 's an audience of people who he 's criticizing as saying that you know this university degree that you got that you think was you know so important maybe a big part of that was for you to signal to yourself or to your family members or to the wider world hey like look at me i'm in the top third i'm sort of you know i'm a graduate i'm going to be able to to um to you know to make stuff happen in the world um and it is a deeply uncomfortable read so i can sort of understand why people would would find it hard to sort of to come to terms with it but as you say it is a very well argued book yeah. um and it's and it explains a lot you know it explains a lot of for example when i was at university recently i was talking to lecturers and they were sort of you know like really passionate about chemistry and the kids just like just tell me what I need to know for the exam. Just tell me what's on the exam. I just want an A. How? What do I need to do to get an A? It's like they don't care about chemistry. They don't. They're not studying for the love of a subject. It's like that. That's like the, there's maybe no better evidence of you know a university education as a signifier of success than a kid who's only interested in you know in what grade they get.
0: Well, of course, we all know that this is, there's a you know a great deal of that going on here, but you know. Shank and and Kaplan and Sandal uh, and Goodhart, you know, these people are coming up with similar conclusions here. that This is not this is not for the common good. You know, this is a tyranny of a meritocracy, as it were, you know. So Sa- Sandal really explodes this one, you know. Yeah, his book, The Tyranny of Merit, is, re- is only published last year. What's become of the common good has a moral case here that backs up Kaplan's view of the world. Uh, it, you know, in other words, that what we built is a system here that's eaten away and destroyed the dignity of ordinary work. We talk about low-skilled labor, as if a lorry driver is low-skilled. Have you ever driven one? <laughs> you know? And we're suddenly faced with a world where, you know, all these graduates have sat at home for the last couple of years during COVID, being fed and watered by people, working class people delivering stuff to their front door and keeping the world going, you know? Uh, and I, I, I think we have to have some humility about this. The rewards have become hopelessly imbalanced towards people who go into finance or people who do what you might call knowledge or brain work, you know, uh, which is actually mostly middle management, to be honest. And so the idea that higher education has massively increased inequality, fed, you know, what we call neoliberalism, actually education has played that game wonderfully. (laughs) You know, they've grabbed the top, they've, they've fed all the money into the top of the ladder here and abandoned the rest. You went back to the audience issue with Kaplan. Now, in Berlin, it was mostly higher education people, but why? There are no further education people there because they don't get grants to go to conferences in Berlin. Academics fly over the world all the time. So it's an audience feeding upon itself. The people who in further education colleges absolutely agree with this proposition, but they're not voices that are heard because governments and the education system has lobbied to starve them of money and suck the cash up themselves. And so vocational learning in my lifetime has atrophied under both left and right wing governments. It's not a neoliberal proposition, This it's generally a drift towards a graduate class that now control, is now the political class, you know, 90 odd percent of people in House of Commons are now graduates, it used to be much, much smaller. Uh, Those people are, you know, are excluded from uh, political life now because researchers become MPs. And so, it's uh, and of course it's not just Sandel with his critique of credentialism, and uh, we have other uh, people. And I particularly like Goodhart uh, because he's he's British. David Goodhart has wrote to somewhere, is just a magnificent book published in 2017, just describing this difference. I know this difference well. I came from one world and came into another. You know the Somewheres who are attached to a place in their local community, that's around 50% of the population, they're the people who voted for Brexit, you know, but nobody knows those people.
1: Yeah, so you write in this post, you were saying that although this book, The Road to Somewhere, was written prior to the Brexit vote, it turned out to be prophetic in that it
0: explained the cause of the Brexit vote. It did. Can you talk talk me through that? Yeah, so uh, when Goodhart, uh, although it was published later, you know, he he wrote this uh, book, as a piece of sociology, really, before the Brexit vote. So his thesis, like we concentrate on what this is, the somewheres are, by and large, working class people who stay, have families in the same area, uh, and they don't drift off and go and work in Paris, you know, and they don't go on uh, internships, and they don't go to university, you know, like all these kids who head off to Manchester, Leeds, and Bristol, and that's our dormitory system we have in the university system. These, This is about 50% of the population, and these are the 50% who don't go to university. Then you've got the anywheres, the urban elites and liberals who, you know, go and you know, travelled the world on holiday and quite happy to send their kids off to wherever, to university, as far away from as possible from your hometown normally, and then you've got these in-betweeners, there's that 25 to 23%, and of course you got this right in Brexit because the somewheres actually came out in the biggest turnout in our history <laughs> in terms of vote and said, well, we've had enough of this, really. I've had enough of cheap labor, no no pay rises and been treated like shit, really, <laughs> I suppose. And uh, I'm going to vote against Brexit. And that they did. And he wrote another really interesting book as a follow-up, which is a really wonderful book called Head, Heart and Hand. Uh, and that was the uh, this year, 2021. And here, this is about this rebalancing of society before it gets completely out of control. We saw it with Trump in America. We saw it with Brexit here. We saw it with the Gilets Jaunes in France. We're seeing it everywhere now. And this, it calls this peak head, you know, in other words, we've given all the rewards to all those middle class parents whose kids go to university and we've ignored the rest. And boy, are we suffering for it now, you know? Uh, Now that we see that cheap labour is not the answer to everything, we see rising wages amongst people with those jobs. That, for me, is a really good thing. We see an increasing focus on the need for training and vocational skills. That, for me, is a really good thing. So, education can suddenly be rebalanced back to a driver for the common good for everyone, as opposed to this graduate class, who then start to call everybody gamins and they look down upon working class people. I, I, you know, I've just lived through this for the last six, seven years in my country. It's been incredibly dangerous politically, incredibly divisive. So Goodhart's critique, I agree with in his Road to Somewhere book, and more importantly in Head, Heart and Hand. What he says there is, let's not spend all money just on the head, on university kids. How, you know, the, the two, let's look at the care workers and the heart and the National Health Service and steer people towards careers in that. Also the hand, you know, all those trade workers that we desperately need, all those lorry drivers. We should certainly be paying more attention to the training of those people. And without that, we're going to be in some trouble. But, of course, we're now panicked into doing it very, very quickly. But it will happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen that myself play out many times as a teacher. So just just quickly, just for the benefit of listeners, that that recent Goodhart book, Head, Heart and Hand, the subtitle is Why Intelligence is Over-Rewarded. Manual workers matter, and caregivers deserve more respect, which I think goes a long way to to explaining his argument. Something that I've that I've noticed a lot with like lots of lots of kids, especially boys, who are sort of like uh, classically sort of like challenging behavior, right? So they're like getting kicked out of lessons, left, right, and center. And they've just like voted out with their heart In they're, they're just like they're, they know what they want to do when they leave school. And it's not going to college. They want to get a trade. They want to go and, you know, earn some money. Um, and I know so many kids that, who've been like that from who I was at school with and who I later taught who were really, really, you know, unhappily, deeply unhappy and caused untold problems for other people, for kids and teachers. Especially in those last two years of school, in the GCSE years, because they were like, "This is not for me." And then you see them two years later, beaming from ear to ear. as that I remember this one kid who was—he <laughs> was a kid who is actually quite remarkable. He was so like extreme in his behaviour. Once he um, he he got himself taken out, like sent out of a lesson. He was in a cover lesson, and he managed to persuade the cover teacher that he was helping out with this drama production in in you know that was going on and the cover teacher didn't know any better than to not let this kid out so off he went and he, he went backstage where this where this, these rehearsals were going on found a wedding dress <laughs> put it on <laughs> and was just tearing around the school in this wedding dress like going he ran in through one one door of the classroom out through the other and there was like a senior leader tearing tearing after him and it was like part of me was like that must be so exciting <laughs> it must be so exciting but he was so bored yeah. in school that he was drawn to dudes like really quite extreme behaviors i saw him you know like not long after he left school he was a scaffolder and he was working on a build that was part of the school and he came up beaming from ear to ear stuck his hand out shook my hand and he was just like so in his element and i'd never seen him smile once in this time he was he was like just a this very sort of fraught kid and you can see how the school system devalues these things and and you know there's no need for that. You know, we don't need to have this. It's, again, you know, we're coming back to Aristotle, aren't we, in the middle way? And with that in mind, I'd like to, I'd like to just sort of conclude this this whistle-stop tour through through this sort of history with the current state of, state of play, which, at least in this country, is very much at the moment characterised by the cognitive scientists, by I think that you, you sort of refer to them in
0: here as... Yeah, the scientific narratives, yeah. We got the... yeah cognitive memory theorists pragmatists, practice people instructionalists yeah those
1: yeah exactly so we've got yeah so you you've got a section that's like teaching from Engelman Rosenshine John Hattie Willingham uh, Black and William Carol Dweck and so on uh, and we've also got uh, Sweller as as you know whose uh, work is very sort of widely um referred to at the moment and and we have this this focus on cognitive science on a knowledge rich curriculum on uh, direct or explicit instruction, um, very tight behavior management, um, and I just wonder what your thoughts are on this on this current moment that we 're at um, given what we 've just been talking about about the wider the wider context.
0: Yeah, sure. And what, what, I, what I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to give the impression that I'm in one tribe or another here. So I give talks at research edge, you know, the whole thing. But, I, you know, I was uncomfortable with that. It's a lot of private school teachers running that, I, which I didn't particularly like. And I, I thought they told a certain line that was very odd. Nevertheless, there was some brilliant stuff I saw there, you know, and I don't think there's any harm at all, any harm at all by teachers being more sensitive to evidence and research. I think, to be honest, Research Ed and some of these other cognitive groups and many of the people that you've mentioned there, uh, you know, those people who really have been looking in detail at memory, for example, as an issue, or the nature of practice and application uh, of knowledge and skills, or the, the instructionalists, the people who are coming up with you know, uh, methods of instruction that help teachers structure lessons and so on. I think that's all good, and it's been a very positive thing. But it's not the whole story, of course. And here we have, you know, the whole trad-progressive thing, which is, uh, you know, rather, a rather foolish distinction, I think, in people taking sides because both matter. And if you look at the evidence, the real spread of evidence, you'll find that both matter. Uh, but uh, so, you know, you really then have to dig into some detail here around, let's say, memory theory or behaviorism or or, or the, the, the group I particularly like are the pragmatists and and practice people, you know, because they're really looking at the application of knowledge and skills. And that goes back to James, uh, you know, William James, John Dewey, uh, Er Erickson, the Bjorgs, and Karpicki and Rodiger and all that stuff. I really do like that stuff. I think retrieval practice is important and has been ignored. I think space practice does work, uh, but it's not the whole story. It's actually quite difficult to implement. (laughs) But, uh, you know, what we're managing to do at the same time is look at good evidence and discard bad evidence. So learning styles, Bandler, Fleming, Honey and Mumford, all that stuff, you know, VAC thing has been demolished, really, and that's a good thing. But that's not to say that cognitive science has all the answers here. It clearly hasn't. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean... Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. I mean, it, it feels like I agree with you that there's been lots of strides in the right direction um, in recent years, like the the, the recognising of knowledge. I think that under the new labour years, the, the overemphasis on skills was was quite strange and unhelpful, especially on the idea that skills could be generic and that they could be
0: devoid of of, of domain knowledge. Just we have to be careful in that one, though, because what what the Blair era meant, they were still massively academic. They they destroyed the vocational side. You know, education, education, education meant getting kids to university with a 50% target. When you talk about skills there, they were, that's not vocational skills like plumbing and hairdressing. You know, it's a completely different thing, I think.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's an important point. Yeah, it wasn't about vocational, although there was even more of a bonfire of vocational qualifications when the coalition came in. Oh, yeah. Um, But, um, yeah, yeah. and and so I think that, like you say, there have been strides in the right direction, but this is a very particular account of like the of the head in goodhart 's book, right like like this the, all of this stuff is about the head, and the the diagram that we so often see about working memory and long term memory and arrows pointing to forgetting and so on that 's all head stuff, and this is but this is the sort of like all we 're seeing, and so like I think that you 're right that the vocational piece is missing, and the thing that i 'm also very interested in is like just like the the role of like emotions and sociality and culture. Which came up a lot in uh, in my last podcast with with Mary Helen Imadino Yang, yeah. um, and I think that there's a whole lot that we're missing in that in that very sort of. Um, like information processing model of education it's like the 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 process is about like transferring information from a curriculum into the kid's long-term memory and that's what education is and a kid with a fully furnished long-term memory that's full of the stuff that's in the curriculum that is the educational success story and I just think that there's way more to to human development and to preparing a young person for life beyond the school gates than than yep. filling their head with curriculum content. And it, so it just feels like, again, there's, it's not like that stuff isn't helpful. L- lots of it really is. But it's just like, where's the balance here? And I think that we've not quite struck that. And, and maybe I think actually just to add a little bit of, of a critical end point to this conversation, because there, there's also a strong strain of, of critique that runs through, that runs through um, this history that we've not really touched upon yet. But in people like Frere... Um, and Ivan Illich and John Holt, who often get ridiculed by people on that cognitive side, but who I know that you have quite a bit of time for each of those. Yeah. Um, I think that might be an interesting note to end on, um, as a, as a, on a balanced note. Uh, so let's start with Frere
0: Yeah, well, I think we have to be a, a bit careful about you know uh, you know being sort of hagiographic about any of these people really, <laughs> uh, because there was a great deal that was uh, a great deal that was probably wrong there, you know, and, and Frère, I mean, the, the critical pedagogy stuff, I just don't like very much because it's not, Frère, you really have to have grouped them together with Giro and Butler, who I think are, have been massively misleading and false and dangerous, to be honest, the critical pedagogy people. Giroux, in particular, in America, but you know, more recently, Butler and critical race theory, and so on. I think that's an enormously damaging thing in schools. Uh, the, let me say that straight off the bat here. Frere is very different because Frere really is an old school Marxist, <laughs> you might call him that. Uh, and I think what was really interesting about him was the way in which he contextualised his theories in South America and Africa. You know, the, he's one of the. Uh, um, there are several theorists I've got in here who. Uh, who built the theories in that different context, outside of the Anglo-Saxon world, as it were. But for Freire, education was a social act. It was pure Marxist interpretation of it and so on. And, of course, all this stuff about banking knowledge and so on. that uh, I, You know, you have to be careful with this because, actually, not, he was one of the first to really diss the knowledge thing, but he went too far there, I think. I think the banking theory is quite wrong, actually, and a misleading metaphor in many ways. Knowledge isn't banked in a sense of being a use, like Bitcoin or something, of no use to man or beast. I think knowledge is banked for future use. So if we go back to the previous debate we had, you know, often, let's say the timetables, which is often the, the one that's used. Of course, it's useful to automatically be able to understand what two times two is without going to a piece of paper to work it out. So there is clearly room for rote learning and practice and all that sort of, what you might call traditional stuff there. But it's also useful to know some of the more difficult things and not necessarily teach what is 12 times eight as an automatic thing, because people hardly ever have to do that. But you need to know the method by which you might calculate 12 by eight, so eight by 10 and eight by two and add them. So the, the danger with these you know, one side of the divide says you've got it's all banking knowledge, knowledge is not important, it's all about critical skills and so on. I completely disagree with that 21st century skills agenda. And go, to go back to something I said earlier here, well, what use is critical skills to these lorry drivers, to these delivery people, to nurses? This is, it's just absolute bullshit the way we're being driven towards an abstract set of skills here that don't really exist because you need knowledge to support them. So a nurse that goes, whether it's a university or a hospital, you need a huge base of knowledge on anatomy, pharmacology, and all sorts of things to be able to function as a nurse. And the idea that it's about critical skills, I know of a professor who is teaching Heidegger in a nursing course. That's just peak nonsense to me. Now, Heidegger, I know well. I studied Heidegger, uh, and even as somebody who's trained in philosophy, i incredibly difficult text to understand. Now, when I was doing my philosophy degree, they wouldn't give me courses in nursing. <laughs> you know, It doesn't make any sense, this. We've got sort of mad around critical theory and abstract stuff in what is what are vocational skills. Uh, and I think this is a big mistake. Now, Frere is a real key 20th century figure in all this. Eh? But there's a lot of crude dialectical materialism, a lot of stuff that I would completely disagree with because he still carries over some of those old eh, relics from Marxism. And dialectical materialism led to the Cultural Revolution in China, and it led to Pol Pot in Cambodia, you know, where we sliced and diced people and killed the other half, basically. We killed, in the Cultural Revolution in China, one half of the population, the intellectuals and teachers, by and large, were massacred. The same happened with Pol Pot. That was the net result. Right up to 1975, remember, Pol Pot did this. So be very careful about Dusting off old Marxist books, you know. I was at a conference at the weekend. There was a Russian guy speaking in the panel, and he was guffawing when people were quoting that Marxism. He said, "You, you know, you didn't grow up in that that world. You know nothing about it, and it's just a it's just a bookish thing for you because you're an academic." You know, uh, you know, you have to read some history.
1: <laughs> it is fascinating, isn't it? We seem to have learned one of the two major lessons from the 20th century, which is that fascism and, and raw individualism doesn't work well, and neither does does communism and Marxism. And it seems like we learned one of those lessons, but other people seem to be still quite happy to describe themselves as Marxist.
0: Yes, um, and and a lot of it's been sublimated. So when you go into Giraud, for example, we put put the word critical pedagogy on the mark Henry Giraud. That's just like Marxism, like really the critical, radical pedagogy stuff. You know, this you know who, who sees schools as just vehicles for cultural reproduction. You know, the idea that schools are just the, <coughs> sort of tools and and some sort of abstract the man, you know, capitalism, neoliberalism. I don't I don't agree with that. I just don't agree with it. And the critiques are are brutal and simplistic. And then it gets even worse, of course, when you come on to Judith Butler and some of the madness uh, uh, of more recent people who pick up on bits of hopeless philosophy, well, they're not hopeless philosophy, I really love some of these people, but they pick up on Foucault, for example, who basically said schools were prisons. Really? They're not really, are they? <laughs> but people take that stuff incredibly seriously. And yet when you ask people like Vygotsky, hardly anybody's read Foucault. Hardly anybody's read Derrida. And this is, the, I think, we've got ourselves into a situation where we're dealing with proxy caricature names and pumping it into teacher training and and sometimes practice in schools, but that's incredibly dangerous, I think.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, let's do Ivan Illich. I, like, it's not some, it's not a name that you hear
0: very often these days, <laughs> yeah. but um,
1: fascinating book,
0: *Schooling Society*. I have to say, I absolutely love Illich, uh, and so. You know, and the deschooling society is one of my favourite books, and uh, you know, it's something—it's a book I go back to a lot. So you know, his his view, going back to what we said right at the beginning here about schooling being a, a sort of new church of a form, really. You know, he, you know, he came, he was a Catholic priest actually originally, so he came from that world—the the world of the Catholic side—but believed that most education was much more Calvinist in its view, and so he really lays into schools and its structure because he thinks that. You know, this, this grouping people according to age is a very interesting phenomenon, actually, but it's the foundation of schooling in the West. And uh, he really did question that. I, I must admit, he's made me think for many, many years over that issue. One of my sons does taekwondo, and he's in the England team. He's, you know, a real international athlete level. And they teach that sport not by age, but just by merit. So you can get a black belt when you're 10 years old, you know, if you're good enough. And uh, Some people don't get it until they're 30 or 40. And it's always mixed age and the the respect is for skill and technique and not age. And it's taught me a lot watching him grow up since the age eight. He's now 27 doing that. And I've become quite sceptical about age grouping because historically, you know, we as human beings have evolved and grown up in an age mixed environment and schools completely destroy that and put them into a sort of hierarchical pyramid.
1: Yeah, it's deeply weird that people often say that that's an argument that comes up when people talk about homeschooling and they're like, oh, well, I send my kids to school to get socialized. But that's a weird form of socialization. Like, like, it's far more healthy
0: to be able to be mixing with, with kids of different ages. That's right. So, so, you know, coming back to Illich, he wanted to deinstitutionalize these things by, you know, plucking out some of these older, almost religious influences in in education. And then what I loved, and that that was mostly around Calvinism and original sin and these sort of things, but he had many, many interesting ideas here about what we can do for schools that we don't have time to go into, other than really recommend de-schooling as as a book. It's such a marvellous little short book. But the end of the book is really fascinating because he was a real prophet here. He saw that technology would come along, and he talks about the web of learning, where people would be able to learn more independently or be put in touch with teachers on and you called it a web, interestingly, where, you know, you'd have, you'd have educational stuff that was freely available to anybody anywhere on the planet. You'd have skill exchanging, peer matching, reference services, all that. And all that has happened. All that's happened in a very short period of time. And soon, you know, once we get this, you know, some really interesting things happening technically that people should be aware of. Starlink, for example, will give 5G Internet access to any place on the planet, including anywhere on in Africa. Now, I've spent a lot of time in Africa, Rwanda, Uganda, Namibia, Ethiopia, and so on. And the big problem is just infrastructure there. So I I think this will be a, a real boon in the future. And Illich. It's a bit of Illich that people don't know much about, but he was quite prophetic here. He thought that, you know, it's not that information needs to be free, education needs to be free. It needs to free itself from institutions. And I, I I have a lot of time for that argument. So just in case
1: people aren't familiar, so Starlink, and I've, I'd like that in a previous presentation I saw you give, where like you, you took Maslow's hierarchy of needs and then you added Wi-Fi <laughs> on the bottom of it, yeah. and then and then um, battery life. And so Starlink is a is an Elon Musk thing. There's a there's where there's. Can you just explain to people what this is? It's like a, a satellite-based um, internet access thing
0: yeah well as you as you as many people know even in in the u k if you live out in the countryside, then internet access is quite tricky and expensive so Starlink is a network of thousands of low level satellites much lower than the the satellites that exist at the moment, and they're all connected by lasers so that you can get internet access uploading and downloading to a satellite network line of sight. And there will be no blind spots because it covers the whole of the surface of the Earth. There are two holes at the North Pole and South Pole because there's nobody there, obviously. (laughs) But the rest of the Earth is covered. And it's quite affordable. It's about $89 a month at the moment. But, of course, that price will fall. Now, this holds great promise in terms of the delivery of very sophisticated, you know, the stuff I've been working on, learning technologies, adaptive learning, some really juicy stuff to anywhere on the planet. And if you go Africa, the first thing you notice is that everybody has a mobile phone and they use it for all sorts of things that we don't use it for. And that's because it's a lifeline for work, for finance, for survival almost. So I think, uh, you know, MPesa pesa for example, it's that in Kenya, is a method of trading minutes on your phone. Uh, and, you know, it's a, a, an extremely sophisticated bartering system, but that that grew up in Africa. Elon Musk was born in Africa. He's an African. So he underst- I think he understands this more than most in many ways. Uh, and I, I think we're moving into an era where we'll have these interesting advances in technology that will allow a massive acceleration in terms of learning, whether it's vocational or abstract or academic. And I'm really interested in that stuff because I've been working for the last four or five years in artificial intelligence and applying that to uh, the building of learning content and improving learning generally. So uh, we can move on to that if you wish uh, as a topic.
1: Yeah, yeah, we can do. I mean, so yeah, a future guest I've got coming on is Yong Zhao. I don't know if you've come across his book, Learners Without Borders. Um, he's, he wrote a really interesting little book called What Works May Hurt, which came out a few years ago. That's a fascinating little thin tome. Um, and his new one is Learners Without Borders. And he's talking about about like kids in nepal i think who like you know like accessed some mooc and they learned the english language completely without instructors without teachers uh you know and this is what moocs offer the ability to do and i'm interested to hear your thoughts on that because i i understand that you're a fan of moocs
0: um well, well, is, that yeah, fair, I, is that fair to say well i wouldn't even say a fan it just it, it happened because it had to happen so the the big mooc companies, uh, Udacity, Coursera, and so on, they're all worth one and a half billion. You know, they're, they have ma- they're bigger than any university on the planet, and that's because they serve the need. Now, initially, a big mistake was made. So, MOOCs were built by academics, for academics, for university students. So, they were like six, 10-week courses, drip-fed. They mimicked a traditional university calendar semester type model. But of course, that wasn't what people wanted at all. The great untapped market, when you looked at demand, was for vocational courses, back to that adjective, vocational, on business, healthcare, and IT. So they swung away from doing you know, traditional academic subjects towards doing that, and the thing has taken off massively. Uh, I did the, you know, the first MOOC, uh, Sebastian Thrun's course on AI, was possibly the best course I've ever taken in my life. And I've, I've been through, you know, Ivy League, the whole thing. So I, I think we have to pay attention to this because it's working and it's tapping into a need. Once it swung towards vocational, it tapped into a need that universities don't serve. And so they're growing growing like topsy at the moment. And uh, that, I think, is a good thing. But there are many other things happening as well out there. I mean, we've had online degrees for ages. You know, University at Derby, I'm a, a, a professor there. And... We've had online learning for years, hugely successful, hugely successful. You you couldn't take the online learning faculty out of that university now because not only does it you know it earn a lot of money, it's a, such a valuable thing. And I go to the graduation ceremonies and you see these kids from Africa all over the world and their whole degree has been online. And in my in some other, I was involved with another university in online and again, I used to go to the graduation, hand out degrees and so on, you know, with the little gown on. And speaking to these kids is amazing, and they're often not kids, they're often mothers with a couple of kids who've come to education later. And they often outperform the campus students because they're a different group. They're highly motivated to improve their lives, to get promotion, to get a new job, to switch careers. And I think the university model doesn't support this very well. You know, Online learning is seen as something hanging off the side, an adjunct, where it should be central to an institutional delivery, because you reach people that you're not going to reach in this rather stupid model where, you know, you go off for four years to party in Leeds when you live in Brighton because you're away from your parents. Uh, I think we need to move to a much more sophisticated model. So the, the effect that MOOCs have had is to accelerate online learning, really, in universities. I think that's one effect they've had, but they're a good thing in themselves.
1: Right. OK. And it's interesting because it sort of flips that dynamic you were talking about with regard to Kaplan earlier and signalling that... Yeah. That MOOCs don't contain the signal that, no. that that degrees do. So maybe the people who are in, who are learning through MOOCs are more intrinsically motivated to actually learn. They're doing a nano degree or whatever it is. They're okay. learning the thing that they're interested in rather than they're doing this to get a chufty badge.
0: Yeah, people in IT. That's the you no. Know, you know, I've built tech companies all my life, and I work with a lot of really good IT people. They, they don't care about the. You know, I'm I the best programmer I ever had. Never went to university. And Coders learn. They, they're really super super automatic, you know, self, a lot of self-efficacy in, the, in that world. You know, they learn new skills every year, new programming languages, new techniques. They learn from their friends. They're quite happy to go on and learn a course. Like my son, has a degree in AI, he's not going to go back to university to learn anything. He's, he goes straight on to one of the best courses in the world. Like we've just been using GTP3. It's a big transformer, an amazing bit of software and AI, revolutionized AI. And to learn to use it he just went on to a week-long course on on a technical aspect of this and he did that off his own back that's the way these kids learn mm. you know and the and he has access to the best brains in the world they're online why should he go to the local college who wouldn't even know what gtp3 was so i think the world is changing very very quickly and the people who were behind this is important we had Salman can who in mathematics the area i, I like and enjoy I mean, he was the first progenitor, you know, people like Thrun, they literally who started Udacity. He said, well, I would never have done it if Salman Khan hadn't come along. And Salman Khan was a, was a finance guy, you know, a mathematician who came along and just started doing these lectures online on YouTube and it grew to be an enormous thing. And it is brilliant. And then we have Sebastian Thrun who came along and did his first course on AI. 160,000 students took that course and I was one of them. It was an amazing experience. And then Nig and Kohler, who are also AI members, there's a common theme here, these are mathematicians and AI people, they're quite techy, Nig and Kohler at Stanford, start Coursera, now massive. So I think we've had some real advances here in terms of online education. Remember, it's only been going for 10, 20 years, so like, give it a chance, you know, education, yeah. other education will be going for centuries.
1: There are often huge dropout rates, aren't there? Like, like it's often like hard to get the stats because the companies, understandably, don't publish them. There's like you often see that something like two million people signed up to do like the learning how to learn course is the biggest Coursera course on the planet. But I don't know how many people actually
0: get to the end of it yeah, but or, or any of those courses. I, I think that I think that's just a category mistake. You know, if I if I commit to going to Bristol University, right? I'm going to be, I know I'm going to be committing 30,000, pounds, four years of my life. I'm going to move. I'm going to leave my home. I'm going to get accommodation. It's a complete mistake to compare that experience with a MOOC. Now, like I've taken a lot of MOOCs, okay? Some of them I dip in and I'm just window shopping. I'm just saying, what's this like? Ah, no, I don't like that one. I don't like the academic. Too many boring lectures. I come out. That's fine. That's exactly what I should be doing. I shouldn't be hanging on in there just because I've gone into it and stuck with it for three years when I don't like it. So there's a lot of window shopping. And of course, what you're doing there is when you say dropout, your benchmark there is a course at university. 50% of people drop out of university anyway. We often forget that. It's a massive dropout at
1: university. 50%, really?
0: Well, yeah. If you actually look at the real dropout rates going up in America, it's, it's even higher there than it is in the UK. There's massive dropout amongst amongst students from universities, hardly ever shown in the stats. But the the main point about MOOCs is that they're not like university courses. There's a sort of thing you look, you you get what you want from them. When we were at Derby, we did a dementia MOOC. Now, we, we designed it very carefully so that all the content was there at day one. Now, some of the people doing that MOOC were nurses, some were carers at home who were looking after an elderly reference, and they just wanted module six. They didn't want to do the other stuff that the nurse or physician would want. So it's absolutely natural that people don't do the whole thing. You get from it what you need. And so this dropout thing is just, you know, it's used by academics often to diss MOOCs, but actually it's a category mistake. You're just comparing apples with pears in many ways, you know?
1: So let's come on to the final bit of this conversation uh, where with like forward yourself for twenty years, imagine that there's an addition on this list of yours which says clark <laughs> yeah, right. uh what's what do you think and there's there's what I like about what you've done is that you've not just sort of summarized in each of these. Um, you know, these sort of short summaries of each of these people who've influenced things in some way. Um, but there's also critique in there, and you sort of you shared some of your own thoughts on there, but it's very considered and you've done a really good job with writing it. Um, so let's come on to. So there's three questions here essentially positives, um, the challenges, and uh, fixes to those challenges. So let's start with the positives. What are we getting right?
0: What we're we getting right? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of what happens in schools and universities is actually quite good. You know, although we've focused on the critical thing, it tends to go that way. There's a natural bent to looking towards the negatives in here. So in schools, I think schools are a lot better than they were in my day. I, you know, and I think there's been gradual progress, especially towards the consideration of the needs of kids with special needs or dyslexia and so on. That barely existed. And, that, and just one generation that's been revolutionized. Uh, but also in terms of the quality of the teaching, I think that's gone up enormously. Let me give you an example. I went to a Scottish school and music lessons, and I I kid you not, I sat for several years in a room where someone plonked away in the piano singing green sleeves and hymns. And that's not an exaggeration. I did that year on year in secondary school in Scotland. And so whenever I hear people talking about the great Scottish educational system, I sort of guffaw, really. Uh, So I think we've seen improvements in terms of The differentiation of kids in schools and their needs. Uh, However, uh, I don't think that's been matched by the output because the output is still funneling people towards going to uni. As I say, 50% of those kids, the majority of those kids get ceremoniously dumped almost because there's little interest in giving them even career advice around trades because none of the teachers know anything about it in a way. So I think that's a, a major and serious social flaw there. In universities, the, the good news is that by accident and I, by accident, I mean COVID, we've gone through two years where people have been forced to change their ways. In other words, an external cause has managed to make some cultural shift. If you go, so I've been in universities all over the world, and you know the, the buildings, the culture, the QA process, the processes, the training all forces people to lecture. <laughs> you know, that really the whole system is built around that basic pedagogy and essay's rather primitive form of uh, assessment. We can discuss that if you want, because essay mills were you know destroying that one. The the good news is that there has been a rethink. Almost everybody has had to teach online. And although most of them did it badly, not their fault, I should add, because there was ill, they were ill-prepared and their institutions didn't do it quick enough. They should have been preparing for this pre-COVID. They're now going through a rethink on all this and getting a sort of blended learning. I'll use that phrase, you know, hybrid, blended, high flex, whatever you want to call it. But I think we need to optimize the output for learning around these blended models. But we're not doing that at the moment. We're using a sort of Velcro notion of blended learning. We're taking classroom lecture hall and sticking it like Velcro onto the online stuff, you know, and not melding them together. What you have to do is redesign your course from scratch again or redesign your learning experiences around the use of technology so that you get an optimized blend. And I've been working on all sorts of tools that allow you to do that recently. And you really have to use some very sophisticated mathematics and AI and all sorts of things to, to design and calculate what an optimized blend would do. It's no use leaving it to an individual teacher because the options are too, it's too complex a, a task
1: is the, is the problem with that not like the problem of flipped learning, which is like you sort of you set some of the work to be learned at home rather than it all being delivered in the lesson say um, and that's, it seems to me that that would be implicit in a blended or hybrid learning model, but the problem with that is that some kids don 't do it or some of them don 't some of them do it but they don 't really understand it, or some of them you know there might be that they 've not got enough devices at home for whatever reason they 're sharing with their siblings and so on, which a lot of kids experience during lockdown. But but it seems like there's a fundamental sort of like I can't see how you get past that
0: point. Well, you can't see you can't see that my kids spent eight, would spend eight hours a day on a computer console and did <laughs> anyway outside of school. I mean, the I think there's no I think this is the the what you, what you were painting a picture of there was this uh, velcro model, you know, this distinction between home and school, for example. Yeah. You know? Now. Actually, it's, it, it, it has been a Velcro model forever and a day, homework at home, the rest in a classroom, and nothing in between. The true model here is to make sure, as I say, if you redesign this properly, and this is the norm, almost every company in the world does this now, when they go into the workplace, it's a completely different model now. Once you use very sophisticated software, you can do some wonderful things. So let, let me give you an, an, I'll illustrate this by example, maybe. So. Arizona State University in the states has 40,000 students. It's one of the biggest universities in the world. It's massive, and they had a problem with 101 courses, exactly the problem you described here: massive dropout in students on 101 statistics, maths, psychology. You know all those courses you have to do before you go on and do the really deep work in your degree. And we have a system. I was involved in building an adaptive learning system, and this. Imagine a, a course that's a number of objects and each student vectors through the course with a, a, a bit like the sat nav in your car. So it's keep an eye on you, James, as an individual, let's say in a course on maths. And if you come across a problem, it knows you've come across the problem and doesn't shoot your head along with the 30 other people in the course, so you fail catastrophically. It's, it's taking all the aggregated data from all the students who have taken that course before and what it knows about you at that moment and tells you and gives you what you need next, and that might be some remedial help, a worked example, something different. And so you can, and this is scalable. You can have literally thousands of people going through a very sophisticated adaptive learning system that gets them to their destination. Now, I, this is why Cambridge University have literally just bought this company right off the bat. They did it three weeks ago, because that's the way in which you solve the problem. Let's not imagine that this works in schools. Kids crap crap out in in classrooms all the time, you know? They're not listening most of the time in maths lessons. We know what the catastrophic failure is in maths in schools. It's horrifying. And that's because you can't, the, the, the teacher cannot cognitively diagnose what's going in the heads of 30 kids simultaneously, nor give them any reasonable level of formative feedback. So you get this massive dropout almost day by day in mathematics as the kids fail to progress. Now, technology is the only possible answer to this problem, because unless you come down to -to one-to-one tutoring, and that's just too costly, it does actually work that, interestingly. But what we're trying to do is mimic one-on-one tutoring. This goes back to Bloom's very famous Two Sigma paper in 1984, if you want to go back and look at why the evidence is there for this. But I think we're looking at technology that can do, take some of the load off a teacher and uh, be very, very sophisticated in terms of making sure that kids don't fail by providing good formative resequencing and formative feedback.
1: Yeah. That's the same that's the same sort of rationale that um I spoke to Priya Lakhani previously on the podcast, yeah. um, he's got the company Century Tech, which is yeah. all about exactly that. So it's essentially using AI to differentiate uh the content to meet the needs of kids based on their prior performance. And she was sort of saying that you can do this. I thought that it would that it would involve a kid being at a terminal for a lot, but she said that you could do it with like an hour a week or something. It doesn't have to be some yeah. big onerous, um, yeah, you know. Yeah,
0: well, because, I mean, because it gives you progress much faster than a traditional classroom. So, you know, if you, if you look at what happens in the guts of a classroom inside the sort of Faraday cage, there are lots of kids who are not, you know, when they're in groups, for example you get loads of social loafing. One of the reasons I'm not a social constructivist and I'm a bit suspicious of a lot of collaborative working classrooms is the social loafing issue. So in a group of five kids, you know, one is going to be leading off and, you know, no stuff and so on. A couple are going to be engaged and then three are going to be sitting there not doing much. That social loafing thing is measurable, but worse than that, who are the three kids who are doing the social loafing? They're the kids that need the most help. They tend to be in the poorer, Socioeconomic groups, so a lot of this stuff can be very, very damaging for poor kids. Now, this these newer systems don't know who you are, you know, and actually they bring you along at the pace that you need to go. This goes back to this competence-based model that Bloom talked about a lot. But, you know, people are, forget Bloom's taxonomy, that's just a waste of time, it's been outdated. The other stuff in Bloom is far more interesting around time-based learning. In other words, let's give people the room to breathe and to get to the destination by not I mean, we're obsessed by timetabling and times in education, you know? Uh, You know, there are these, education is like a layer of timed events, like layers of of, of rock that you have to punch up through. And if you hit one, you can't get through, that's you, you're dead and gone. And it shouldn't be like that. We should be giving people time to breathe.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. The the I wrote a piece ages ago. One of my first ever blogs is called The Tyranny of the Timetable. That's great. Um, and it's ridiculous how you ping around from one thing to the next. Um but it is sort of hard to see how, how you could organize because schools have got so many kids in, the timetable just makes things just about sort of manageable. But but just to come back on the social loafing thing. I do agree that that happens. If you don't teach kids how to interact like effectively in, in groups, then you set up you set up a group work task, and it does like go pear shaped really quickly. But I've done loads of work on this, and like the work of my PhD supervisor Neil Mercer and his colleagues uh, Rupert Weggeriff and Lynn Dawes and, and others have have done loads of work on this. And essentially, it's quite a simple problem to solve where you introduce a set of ground rules or talk rules, or sometimes they're referred to as discussion guidelines. You go through a process of, of sort of explaining to the kids that these are you know the rules that are going to guide our discussions, and you make those explicit. You, you go through a process where the kids are involved in that, so it's not just sort of done to them. And you stick these things up on the wall or on their desk, and so and then you re- remind them you know when you 're having a discussion, we make sure that everybody's included, for example, or we build on other people 's ideas or we do whatever and As a teacher, it was the most transformative thing that I ever did was to start using talk rules because it turns the quality of group talk overnight from something that was just some like social loafing pear shaped mess to something where kids were really, really cocking on gas and There's this whole sort of set of theory that underpins that around this idea of exploratory talk. And it's almost like talk where the the reasoning is visible. He's got a brilliant book called Interthinking, which is this idea of like, you know, the hive mind, you know, when a group group of minds is working together in a way that's greater than the sum of its parts. Um, And so I think that there's a solution to that problem. I don't think that it's hopeless, the the group work, social loafing thing.
0: Uh, No, so again... What we have to be danger, the danger here is, you know, dismiss, wholly dismissing or, or, or being hagiographic about theory. So the, the, the social. there are some subjects that are, that are obviously would benefit from social context and speech, uh, but there are others that do not. So I, I, haven't, I haven't taken a lot of MOOCs on quite abstract subjects like philosophy and so on, uh, where the discussion really matters. Uh, you know, where reasoning and and verbal speech really matters, there's great. But the last thing I wanted my AI course was to go into discussion groups, because hardly anybody did. And they didn't, because that's not how you learn the hard stuff. So the danger is universalizing group theory into subjects where it's inappropriate. And I think, to be honest, maths is inappropriate, because it needs a lot of solitary reflection and deep effort by the learner to grasp uh, the very small bundle of skills that you need to progress. And that's often completely destroyed by the collaborative and group work environment. so it's not a matter of this is good or it's bad it's appropriate for some subjects and in some contexts, but universalizing it is just can be disastrous really. The MOOC thing is really interesting because I have taken a lot of them. I, you know I hardly ever go into social chat because actually you know we're all at the same level we don't know shit about something or whatever you know why you know the, and the chat often drifts off and it's not structured properly anyway. And you need human intervention to give it goals. I've written a lot in my book about this as well, how, how, how you do it well. I've been involved in a lot of online teaching. And actually, I think you stand a far greater chance of succeeding online socially than you do in classrooms and institutions. But let me explain why. I think in a MOOC, for example, I did a MOOC on Homer. Let me give you a real example here. So this is a, a deep analysis of the Odyssey and Iliad. And I don't know if you know much about this, but the oral tradition. So these were never written as books. They were stories that were told by people. Yeah. And uh, more recent research has shown that this is still alive and kicking today. So there was research in what was modern Yugoslavia around this. And we had an African guy on the course. And he was in a group. And he was really fascinating because he said, well, oh, you're all talking about, it. So, well, of course, it's alive and kicking. My whole life is this. He said, Africa is an oral culture. And he It was a really massively beneficial thing having him in there. But that African kid wouldn't have been in the course at Sussex University on the Iliad. (laughs) You know, he was doing the book because he couldn't afford to get out of his little village. So, you know, I think that, you know, the trouble is, you know, you go to a university course or in a school and it's a homogeneous group of people culturally. Online, you can bring in the diversity of thought descent, diversity of thinking in a way you can never do in a school, because a school is just the slave of its catchment area and parents and and their kids. So I think we have a, a chance here through this technology of freeing it from the tyranny, tyranny, not only of time, of course, because you can do it, you know, any time. Also the tyranny of place. I don't have to be anywhere to do this, you know, I don't have to travel somewhere to do a course or sit in a room anywhere to do it, I can do it from uh, when I want where I want, how I want, and of course, what I want. If everything's free, then that's great. And that's how we're drifting now. These things are very, very cheap indeed because they're done on scale. So my faith... My faith has always been that technology will solve this problem.
1: I mean, I, I can see that. And, like, if you look at it's almost like if, if, all of this stuff is happening outside of the school system, isn't it? If you look at the things that have most changed our lives in recent years and the hardware of, you know, like computers and, and smartphones, to like, like you were talking about, like the, the way that I learn so much stuff is through YouTube through, uh, you know, Googling stuff. Yep. AI is is implicit in all of that stuff. That's uh, In podcasting, in Wikipedia, in Google Scholar, you know, in that <laughs> dodgy Russian website where you can access all the stuff that's usually behind paywalls, you know, which I probably shouldn't say on, on the airwaves. I would never use such a website, of course. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so that, I, I agree with you that the tech... And I saw a really good talk a while ago by Jimmy Wales. He was talking about how they were figuring out how to download a big chunk of Wikipedia onto smartphones that aren't even networked. This is like pre-Starlink and making them, you know, like $10 smartphones that can be distributed widely in the global south. And then you're democratizing knowledge, which was his whole, you know, raison d'etre, wasn't it? Um, That does seem to me like, I I agree with you. That's a firm firm, uh, thing in the positives box. Can I just quickly just come back on one? This is... Sure.
0: I'd like to pick up. I, I chaired a conference in London and, and, and I spoke at it. And Jimmy Wheels, I spoke to Jimmy Wheels about this actually. So Jimmy Wheels is there and I said to him because I was building a tool at the time. This is four or five years ago. Called This is the, the company I now run called Wildfire. And what we did is we grabbed a Wikipedia page, right, on any topic. And we had a piece of AI that turned it into online learning but quite sophisticated online learning you know with open input and so on and then we built uh so let's say I ask you a question about let's say what is artificial intelligence and there are five main species and you have to type in what you thought it was and then we've got a piece of software that semantically analyzes the answer and gives you feedback you know uh, so we've actually built that and you can do that with wikipedia and we often do it with clients we take the wikipedia page and we shove it in press a button and hey presto it produces Uh, an effortful, high retention learning experience. So that's what Wildfire does. So progress is being made on all this, but the real progress, the reason for telling that anecdote is that the AI stuff, it makes it sing and it's a huge leap forward because AI is smart in the way that teachers are smart. They're not gonna replace teachers for a long, long time, I should add, but they have some of the smarts of teaching. And that's why artificial intelligence is the key for unlocking this you know the the problem you rightly talked about there, James, about motivation in kids and so on. well, we know a lot about that, but let's not imagine that being online demotivates kids. They spend almost all of their lives online on Instagram on Facebook on whatever, or playing computer games so if if we if we manage to capture some of that magic dust and get it into the educational system, I think we will make great strides. yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, thank you. Um, I completely agree. So let's just come back now to. Uh, we'll wrap this up soon. Um, so we've done the positives. Tech is uh, is getting a big tick. Uh, the major challenges now. This this is this is the biggie, right? And I don't. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. Let, let, I'd let you take it wherever you want to go. Like thinking about you know we've talked about a lot today already. What do you see as the major challenge or challenges that we need to get get our heads around?
0: Cultural and political for me. So, and they're connected. So, as I say, my, you know, I'm not, I'm an optimist by nature, but I've become quite pessimistic about education recently because I I have come to the conclusion unwillingly, I wish it wasn't true, that education is now creating this oil and water graduate class that looks down upon other people in many ways. And we saw real evidence for that in Brexit and Trump and all sorts of things. So, I think that's a given for me now. Now, the, the the good thing here is that, you know, um, that democracy has remained alive and kicking and that those people have a say. And funnily enough, COVID has just, abs- it's like the tide, when the tide goes out, lots of interesting things are exposed. And one of the things that was exposed was the paucity of ambition in our education system. And the way in which we've abandoned all those people who were below the waves and unseen, the lorry drivers, the people who work in retail, you know, the backbone of our economy in many ways, but we've seen the error of our ways, I would hope, and that we'd start to readjust the system going forward. But that brings me to the second big word here, and that's cultural. And cultural change is very, very difficult. I actually believe that schools and university systems are unreformable, and I, I, I don't mean that negatively, but I don't think you can change them from within because the structures are institutionalized, the praxis is there, it makes it very difficult to change. And I know people hate this analogy, and it was a secular state in America who came up with it. But with, in higher education, for example, you know, you, 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 you poke your finger through the blob and you pull your finger out and it reseals again. And that's happening in a, a lot of institutions with online learning. You know, they've had to do online learning, it actually worked. These kids are going to get their degrees and the same number of firsts will ever emerge and same number of two ones and all that jazz, in the same way that all kids who, many who didn't go to school for long periods are going to get their A levels and their GCSEs. Uh, but the blob is sealing up again and we're, because the culture pulls you back. And this is not the fault of teachers or academics, it's the fault of the institutions themselves who fail to innovate and change. So I think the I think the change has to come by external causes. COVID has been an external cause that has wreaked havoc, but absolutely led to massive change in the workplace. And online learning where, you know, in the workplace, which is far bigger than schools, you know, people spend a lot longer in work than they do in schools. Uh, 80% of the classroom learning has disappeared. That's the Gartner and Microsoft reports. So 80% of all that classroom, you know, going to a little hotel and doing a course on whatever, that's all gone. Almost all of it has gone online. And some of it is getting very, very sophisticated, you know, delivering timed learning just when you need it in the middle of a project, because the artificial intelligence knows that you're working on that project, knows who you are. I've been working on big projects in that area, data led approaches to learning where we really know a lot about what you need at that moment. And therefore, we give it to you in the workflow, you know, as you're working, because most people learn while they're working in the flow of work. Most people don 't learn that much by going in courses because it's a it 's an event and not a process, and you forget most of it as we know within a couple of days of finishing the course so we 're getting there i think workplace learning is get getting very very sophisticated indeed, and we have a lot to cross pollinate between education and workplace learning
1: i mean it's such a fascinating thing for me to think about because this is new new it 's a new one to chew over, and the ways in which I've I've not really thought about it in that way before. I've, I've been aware of like the ways, you, like for example, we talked about Diane Ray and the way in which the school system replicates social and economic inequality. Yeah. But but you're sort of talking about something that takes it a step further than that, which is like the 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 way that that then plays out in society is that we're creating an essentially apartheid, a three tier society. And now I um, listened to a really interesting talk recently by a guy called Chris Bagley who talks about this through the three tiers of of, of of human beings and this goes way back to the ancient greeks as well the ways in which there's always been those who are closest to the gods and then there's the middle class and then there's like people in the gutter sort of thing and and you know we don't use that sort of language anymore but essentially we still have you know for a while it was the class system upper middle lower working class um and you can see how you can see how the education system does this but you're talking about something that is in particular it's this sort of you're you're talking about the graduate class and for example you heard people who were like for example lots of people who went to university voted for brexit so i beg your pardon voted remain yeah didn't they um and the the assumption that went along with that at least in some people was that the highly educated people know that that Brexit's a terrible idea, you know, obviously they didn't study, is Brexit a terrible idea at university, but there there was this assumption that if you're highly educated, then you're correct, and therefore that people who haven't been to university, like, don't know what they're talking about, they're voting in the dark, they shouldn't even have the vote unless they can prove that they understand what they're talking about, and I I saw some of that playing out, and so is this what you're talking about, that the ways in which this in which this social inequality that the education system perpetuates and reproduces endlessly causes massive problems um, in, the, in the society and arguably is a key factor in what we're seeing with this very deep-rooted um, series of ongoing culture wars um, which seem to have no end in sight, depressingly.
0: No, I think that's right. There's a, a, a parallel book which I read was called The Coming of Neo Feudalism by Joe Copkin. And he he said, like John Gray, the philosopher, he, he thinks that, you know, we have this, uh, we're going back to sort of medieval feudalism. I don't think it's too literally, but we have these oligarchs, the billionaires, the 1% sort of thing. That's clearly, that does exist and is getting worse. Uh, we have the clergy. And he, he, he called that, that used to be the church, but it's now basically academia in the upper end of the urban professional classes, lawyers, politicians, arts establishment, literati, journalists, and so on. So that, that's the clarity. Then you have the yeomanry, the middle classes, middle managers, who created lots of employments for themselves by managing the serfs. So the serfs are at the bottom of the funeral heap, and that's the working class you know, whose wages have been on hold, whose jobs were increasingly precarious and held down. People who are really almost despised. I mean, Paul Emery wrote a brilliant book about this. You know how really how did how did this happen that we that people just because they have a degree have the right to to despise and call these people gamins and idiots and deluded and so on. But that's the. what, uh, the un, what was the American one? The. Un... Uh, the uh, the deplorables. The deplorables, yeah, that was it. and that was a presidential candidate a presidential candidate described working-class people as deplorable. So it's sort of, it's almost beyond belief, but it actually happened. So this new graduate class, you know, this is sort of defaulting back to an older class system, which I think is still true. And this is the danger here, because it's not getting better, it may be getting worse, because the mo- the money isn't trickling downwards, it's trickling upwards. Now, I, I, I've managed to spe- spend my life, you know, this by summary, you know, I, I came from a raw working class background, no poverty, and I, funnily enough, I I sort of leapt into the, you know, I made a lot of money, I made millions of pounds, you know, and I've lost a lot of money as well, I should say, but, and I've been through all these stages, and I've been in academia, you know, and I think I know each of these layers quite well, because I've worked in them all, and I've never been more disappointed than I am now about how sharp the divide has become and how little attention we're paying to the, bo- the people at the bottom. Mm. In this town in Brighton where we live, uh, you know, we have student accommodation going up everywhere, literally everywhere, new building, and we have a massive homeless problem. In fact, we have working class people. I was speaking to a woman in the park yesterday who cleans the toilets in Preston Park where I walk my dog, who's been thrown out of council house. Thrown out of council house because one of her sons is leaving and they have a spare bedroom. And so she no longer qualifies for it. And she, within line of sight of her house, are two massive buildings where students have self-contained flats. Uh, what sort of world are we living in when this class, one class, students who have earned no money, paid no tax, get treated like that? Well, that woman gets up at six o'clock in the morning to clean the toilets in the park, is being thrown out of her house. The students are going to pay for that for the next 60 years, though,
1: aren't they, with well, like f- not, 50 no, no. grand of debt? Well, well, often it doesn't get repaid, but I can see, I can see the problem that you're painting.
0: No, the, the debt, the, I think there's a myth. So the, the debt they repay is a tiny proportion, and they only pay it when they earn well above average wages. So the, 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 there is no way that this is a debt compared to this woman who's getting up at six o'clock in the morning to clean the park toilets. Uh, you know, she's living from week to week. And actually, most of them, you know, we're now down to 31% repayment on student loans. So, listen, most of them are not paying anyway. So, I, I think I, I don't agree. I don't agree that the that students are the victims here at all. Here, I think the victims are the people, the 50% who are not going to university. I, I, I honestly believe that. I hope I've been consistent on that. You know, I, th- I think Brexit was a sort of peasant's revolt in a way. You know, you have these Labour voters in the north of England whose wages hadn't gone up for a decade everything was getting more expensive. And they look around and their kids aren't getting anything. Their kids are being, you know, put down in many ways.
1: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? People seem to be slowly sort of coming to terms with the left-wing case for Brexit in the sense of, you know, like, all this recent shortage of HGV drivers and the wages of, you know, you can earn 80 grand a week, a, a, a year now of driving a supermarket delivery truck yeah. um, and jobs in the hospitality. And Boris Johnson has seized on this, hasn't he? been repeatedly been saying wages are going up. Um, and you can you can see that it's clearly the case that when we had, like, lots and lots of immigration where there was people from countries that have got a lower standard of living and lower wages... It's going to suppress the wages of, of unskilled labour. And it seems like yes. maybe maybe all those working class people who voted for Brexit could see that. And that does indeed seem to be the case that, we, that we're seeing it playing out in the way that wages are rising
0: now. I think that's right, James. You know, I think people who voted Remain may think upon the fact that they were essentially voting for the most extreme form of neoliberal economics imaginable, that you solve poverty by taking one group of poor people from one country, importing them, and depressing and denying employment for those who are in another country. Actually destroying the economy in the first country and destroying the the wages in another. And if people think, you know, if people bandy the word neoliberalism around, then I think they have to reflect on the fact that that's what we did. And we weren't asked, you know, whether we wanted to say it happened to us. And of course, as soon as people had an opportunity to vote, they'd have said, oh, enough's enough here. And now we're seeing in this post-Brexit period, I think, a resetting of that so that the wages are rising in those professions, quite rightly. My uncle was a lorry driver. I spent a lot of time in his cab. It's a skilled job. It's a difficult job. And boy, do they deserve the wages. You know, your average middle manager was earning twice as much for sitting doing some nebulous uh, 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 link job in, 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 most, in most cases. So I think the reset is starting to happen. But, you know, it's still the case that, you know, in academia, for example, I remember meeting a, a, an academic. It was actually in the British Embassy in Belgrade, of all places, and she said she couldn't admit that she voted for Brexit because it would uh, absolutely affect her job in promotion. That's an appalling thing. Imagine that. that you can't express your views now politically without your job being at risk. And, of course, we've seen that in our, uh, this is the great danger with the critical theorists, going back to those people, you know, if people want to destroy people on the basis of, well, they just disagree with me, that's a bad thing in education. Mm. It's a bad thing. Well, this is
1: something that's, I mean, this may be a much bigger conversation that we've got time for here. But it's it's at least worth asking the question. There was this study done recently, a big survey of like you know nearly forty thousand U S. Uh, university students, and two thirds of them said that it's okay to drown out your opponent in a debate, to literally just like take foghorns to the debate and not even let their their view be heard. Yeah. And something like twenty odd percent of people thought that it's okay to use violence against people. Yeah. Um. And we're just at this unbelievable. Point in history, aren't we, where the the quality of the public discourse has never been more fractured? I mean, I, it links to what you just said at the end here. I don't really know how this links to this wider picture that we're talking about about the role of education in this. Clearly, the majority of these kids, you know, have gone to has have done quite well in the education system if they're at university. So at the very least, the school system hasn't been successful in leading them to a point where they don't think that it's okay to just drown out your opponent with foghorns. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a biggie. I don't know if we've got time, but have you got any in- initial
0: thoughts on that? Well, I, Again, I would go back to you, going, going back to the list that we were dealing with again. So I, I, I did a lot of reading uh, of Jonathan Hyde and his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, was published in 2018, which I highly recommend because he does a full almost diagnosis of the problem here. So he thinks that certain things have happened. You know, uh, he thinks that, uh, it, that the Talib concept, of anti-fragi- anti-fragility, is an important thing here. That we we do great harm, for, but through overprotective parenting, especially in the middle classes. You know, we don't let the kids out and so on. We 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 hot them and all that sort of thing. So they spend most of the time in their bedrooms. Uh, And then the second thing was that we had the swing towards always trusting your feelings. You know, the idea that subjective, instinctive feelings are always great. Actually, they're not. If they're violent, they can be a very bad guide in terms of personal decision making. So we have that cognitive behavior distortion. And then the third one is that the world is a battle between good and evil, you know, that we are good and everybody else is evil. So these three things were his diagnostic things. He wrote the, the book, The Calling of the American Mind, by call guy called Greg Lukianoff. But the six trends are really interesting. This is why the book is so fascinating. He thinks that we've had this polarization on campuses since about the 1980s, but more recently since 2016, where faculty have been targeted. We had that with Catherine Stalk recently here in Brighton, where literally people were threatening her life students and demanding she be sacked because she wrote something they disagreed with, unbelievably. He thinks we've seen an increase in anxiety and depression because kids are not resilient enough. Uh, He thinks we've had paranoid parenting, the decline of free play since the 1980s amongst kids, the bureaucracy of safetyism. I mean, I I, I taught in Penn State University and I was in a lecture with 500 IT kids, there of course, there was a massive uh, skew towards young men, Asian kids, Indian kids, American kids, and so on. And somebody stopped me before I started and gave a lecture on how this was a safe environment, and if they saw any sexual uh, harassment, they had to report it. It was a formal. <coughs> it was unbelievable, really, because these kids weren't going to sexually harass anyone. They could barely look you in the eye, you know. I do know if many of them had had their first date. They was, you know, they were very, very young, and. I, this, this atmosphere that parades the world now, you know that everything has to be policed, but who's, who's doing the policing here? You know, publishers are now more, of, not afraid of the readers or reviewers, the but their own employees. Yeah. So you have the employees in yeah. Netflix who are going to cancel Dave Chappelle for me. Is that right? I don't think so. Is it the students who are going to get Kathleen Stock fired from Sussex University because they think that Sussex University is an unsafe place? It's possibly the safest campus in Britain. <laughs> for trans and bi people, and Kathleen Stock is a lesbian herself and and supports the trans movement. So we've gone it's sort of peak peak madness on this stuff. I think.
1: Yeah, it, 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 we're at this very very fraught point. I don't fully understand it. The, the, another thing that Jonathan Haidt talks about is, is social media and the, the the shadow side of tech, if you like. You know, yeah. and this, especially the impact that it has on mental health. Um, among young people, uh, but there are also sort of like generational shifts like like the 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 so called meta modern generation or generation Z or alpha or whatever they they go by a few names i think i I like the idea because it's like generation Z like a part of this is like we don't have positive narratives of the future do we like in in the sort of 70s and 80s there was lots of sort of you know star trek the early star treks was all like you know the, the like humanity in, in 22nd 23rd century was like multiracial. there was lots of equality it was like this positive vision of the future that we we're working towards yeah. and everything's just been pure dystopia since about the mid-80s the last the last hollywood film that had a utopian future was Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you know, <laughs> and that was just like the same as now, but with more water slides. Like <laughs> we've we've just got dystopia after dystopia, um, and so there's like there's this sense, and and even the phrase Generation Z. It's like shit. This is the <laughs> this is the end of the alphabet, guys. But so so the, the I like the idea that there's a Generation Alpha, but we do need to have some positive narratives about the future that we're working towards because it, it sort of feels like everyone's just very embattled yeah. they're, they're clinging to tribal identities and they and they're, and, the, and the other ways in which the you know the the shadow side of tech plays out is that it endlessly repeats the same messages right and you get more and more po- you know those experiments that have been done about youtube how you click on one thing that's some fairly innocuous you know looking video and within five clicks you've got some really extreme you know um indoctrination material being pumped into your feed by the algorithm um and then people get like the like the you know the the q phenomenon in the states where there's huge i thought this was a fringe thing but there's like huge numbers of people who really believe that the that, that you know the clintons and all these other people are in this pedophile ring and that trump is the savior of this piece and you know, the, is, like, tech is it? Tech is also, so th- there's this interesting...
0: I think we have to be careful here, though, you know, of just always pointing to the bogeyman, which is tech. So, you know, recently we had a really bizarre example. So when the MP got murdered, uh, recently a Conservative MP got stabbed to death by an Islamic terrorist, clearly, uh, the House of Commons blamed Twitter. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. It, it, I, I can't imagine a bigger non-sequitur than that, you know. This guy didn't stab him because he read it on Twitter. It was You know... Uh, and I think we've got to be careful here. You know, I could equally say that the graduate class, let's say we go a discussion on Brexit. I would say, could it be the case that all the Remainers were deluded into thinking the EU wasn't a neoliberal project? Are they, are they immune from delusion? And it's only the other half, the people that, they, that vote the other way were deluded. I think the great danger here is always being tribal in your interpretation of the tech. Because I, I don't really see this when I, I use tech every day, all day, you know, and I don't, I don't get this idea that the algorithm is leading me towards. I think I'm a fairly independent thinker, as you probably heard today, and you know, trying to get the subtlety from the data. But I think there's a group of people who think they're immune and can never be deluded, and that's a really dangerous authoritarian position to take. And that's why sandal things, I think I agree with something you said earlier, James, which is the common good has disappeared. The good is now a group, uh, gone down to group level, pitching one group against another. You know, I was walking past the Labour Party conference where we had the, I can't remember his name now, James Bray, I think his name is, who was the uh, anti-Brexit anti guy with a foghorn. And he was, he was braying away into the Labour Party conference, <laughs> the, Labour, the Labour were pro-Brexit pro so, And then at the same time, you had the TERFs group, you know, the, there was a LGBT group who were against, who were protesting. And at the same time, a trans group were attacking them. And you go, this is madness. All these groups are focusing on the wrong people. You know, they're focusing on the wrong thing. The real problem here are, the real problems are climate change, poverty, inequality. And what we're doing is fighting each other. Well, the rich get richer. <laughs> well, and that's,
1: that's exactly what's happening, and and height ha- is really good on that. The the strap yeah. line of the righteous mind is why good people are divided by religion and politics, and all of those people who are very heightened, like they all they all believe in, in freedom, they all believe in equality, they all believe in like that you should be nice to people, but all but somehow like like the the nature of the um, of the discourse has become so polarizing and heightened. I definitely don't don't blame blame it on tech, but I, I mean I do think that it's clear that tech has a significant role to play here, and that that Silicon Valley isn't that interested in in ethics anymore like it was sort of 20 years ago like like do no evil and stuff was was google's like company mission statement wasn't it and it seems like it's more about the bottom line now the way that facebook for example refused to stop taking dark money for political advertising and so on like there's clearly there are clearly significant problems with like misinformation being peddled online by dark actors who've been very effective at influencing democratic elections, not just Brexit and Trump, but seemingly around the world. Like this stuff is, I mean, you is know, happening.
0: I, you know, it, I mean, I look at this in a lot of Take Brexit, for example, Now, I, I sat there, I got a leaflet delivered through my door, <laughs> asking me to remain, as did every citizen here. Uh, if that wasn't propaganda, I had every business group, every university, every academic I know, Every politician on the left, and I've been in the Labour Party all my life, telling me I was wrong, and you're telling me that the propaganda was on the other side, I just don't buy it. I think this idea that, you know, these brave people who voted for this, voted against the run of uh, of play here, you know, they were, the the amount of effort and money by every establishment figure, politician, sport, you name it. I
1: agree, it was coming from both sides. It Sorry? was coming from. It was co- the, the yeah. The propaganda was coming from both sides. I think that's right. But yeah. also, if you look at like the spend that 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 vote leave dropped on online advertising two days before the the yeah. Brexit vote. No, 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 no. I just don't buy this. And the the, the the what? Okay, talk talk me through this. Like the Cambridge Analytica
0: thing. You don't think that that was a, a significant influence in the outcome no, of the vote? Well, now read the government report on that. It shows that it had no real effect on anyone. This is this is the problem that causality has been read into this all the time. It was a massive failure. The Cambridge Analytica effort on this. And. It's not as if money wasn't being spent by the other side. Remember, the Remain side also got fined. Nobody knows this, nobody, you know, but they also got fined for overspending. So the, sp- the spend overall on either side, remember the sheer effort. If you look at the two pops and the amount of information that came from one side or the other, the Remain side was by an order of magnitude bigger. The government themselves sent on day one a leaflet to every single household in Britain. Every establishment figure got time on TV. Every question time had three remainers for one person from Brexit. It went on and on and on. And even after the vote for four or five years, that continued. So I don't buy this idea that, the, you know, one one side were buying their way out of this. I think that's a convenient way of explaining. or it's It's almost like a proxy for saying people are stupid, they're easily duped. Well, I don't. I've never bought that because these are my people. I know them, you know. And I don't. I voted for Brexit. I don't consider myself to be either stupid or or a person who was duped. I worked for the Commission, you know, and they, I I I I'd spent a lot of time in Europe. I've travelled extensively in Eastern Europe, especially, and so I think the I think the people who were being deluded were those who thought that this would continue unabated, and that poor people would remain poor, poor while everybody else reaped the rewards. I honestly believe that, you know, but I had my one vote. <laughs> my wife voted yeah. too. I should add, but uh, I, I think also the Generation X thing, you know, Z are really dangerous categories because these are university kids going back, you know, when you say, well, who are all these people who are complaining? It's all campus noise, you know. It's only on campuses <laughs> that this is happening. You know, working class kids working uh, in ordinary jobs, the, you don't see the plumbers and carpenters come out. Although, when b- bizarrely, this graduate class decided to block the M25 recently and actually prevent working-class people doing their jobs, and we saw what happened there—it was close to violence. On oh, every the
1: insulate Britain thing, yeah, there was like there was blockade blockading traffic, and there was some woman. There was a video of a woman who couldn't couldn't follow her mother in an ambulance to hospital, wasn't there?
0: Yeah, and of those people, the insulate Britain people, were lucky to get away with not not being more violent, I thought that the working class people in their fans were actually quite reasonable. All they did was tear the banners away. It, you know, if that had gone on further, somebody was going to get really badly hurt or even killed. And I think it was a typical example of a, a graduate class who think they're above everybody else and can do what they want to disrupt other people's lives rather than taking action to the people who really matter. You know, the banks, the rich, the you know the things in politics that I used to demonstrate against. We're not, we've lost that now. All they want to do is lay into pe- the wrong people now. The people who are going to insulate your home. Why would you stop them going to work?
1: <laughs> okay, so so we've spent a good bit of time here, like fleshing out the challenges, right? And uh, uh, we've we've sort of come full circle there. Yeah. Um, where, like, fix that. We're going to end on a nice solution-focused uh, happy ending. This is this is a comedy, not a tragedy. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm optimistic because I think, uh, you know, in the big problems that we face, climate change and societal healing, I think technology is not the problem. I think it is the solution, as it's always been. So in the Industrial Revolution, you know, we we freed ourselves from a feudal society. We then had uh, mass consumer electronics, which freed especially women from being slave labor in households, basically. (laughs) That's the truth of the matter. We now see see education being helped by it it being made faster, cheaper, better, only because of technology. That's the only way of doing this. You can't just simply throw warm bodies at it, that just makes it more expensive. I think we're seeing that happen on a global scale, and I'm hoping that education will be democratized and it will see the light and not be stuck in this purely academic track, which is good in itself. But it's not right for everyone because it's, it, it's based on the, on the few and the not, not the many. And I hope that we rebalance everything back towards, I can see this happening now. You can see it happening every day. Wage rises for poorer people, a, a more respect for people who do drive lorries and work in abattoirs. And I, my first job was in a slaughterhouse. Uh, I, I think we're seeing a rebalancing and a reset, which is a good thing.
1: Well I think we're going to leave it there for now. We've had we've had a good bit of time here. I've got such a lot of 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 time and respect for the work that you're doing Donald with this with this um learning theorists project. Um it's brilliant and it's a great service I think because like you've written this short sort of introduction if people want to take it further than they can do, um, because it's it's an over like my reading list for education is already like ridiculous. I'm currently <laughs> looking at a pile of books um, that already almost reaches to the ceiling, and I'm in the lounge here. It's not doesn't make me popular <laughs> in my marriage, um, and you know there's there's oh you should see my room, <laughs> <laughs> and there is but there is there you go floor to see ce- floor to ceiling books, but there are so many people on your list that are not currently. Uh, Adorning my lounge, and so there's there's clearly further further reading that I have to do here. So I thank and applaud you for for the, this um, monumental effort, really, to 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 do this. Um, and you know, I'm still really interested to hear about AI. Maybe I'll get you back on at some point, and we'll do the the AI chat because we didn't really touch on that too much today. But I'm really interested in that um, as it applies to education and the the wider questions around AI. Um, but that's going to have to wait for another time, I
0: think. Yeah, that was great. I hope I haven't made myself too unpopular with your listeners, but uh, if anybody's got any questions, I'm open. you can contact me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I engage quite a lot in dialogue on social media, and I'm more than happy to to answer any questions And uh, uh, on that front, so publish anything you want in terms of links, and I will get back to people.
1: Good stuff. All right, uh, until the next time. Cheers, Donald. Okay, James, thanks
0: very much for that. That was fun.
1: Time is a measure of change, we don't have much time, time is a measure of change.